0: Well, the idea for the wall came from ten years of touring with rock shows, I think. Particularly the last few years when, uh, in 75 and in 77, we were playing to very large audiences. Some of whom were our old audience, who'd come to hear what we wanted to play. But most of whom were only there for the beer in big stadiums and uh, consequently it became rather an alienating experience doing the shows. Okay. And I became very conscious of a wall between us and our audience.
1: Welcome to Pod Like a Hole, Season Three, where we run the gamut of all of our favorite artists and albums. I am very pleased to be a part of this project. Um, My name is Mark. If you haven't heard our podcast before, what we typically do, we talk about our favorite artist or band, and we go through their discography in Either chronological order, if you look at our season one with Nine Inch Nails, or in random order using a cursed dice that we got from some Pinocchio uh, puppeteer out of the side of a wagon. And in that second season, we talked about David Bowie and we did it in random order. And thank God that we did because there is a string of records there that could potentially have broken us. But it was a great season all in all, and we're glad to be back. So if you hadn't listened to season three, or season two, our finale, excuse me, we decided to essentially break the system a little bit, where each of us nominated 14 bands or artists, and then picked an album of each of those artists or bands that we nominated. And we're going to roll the dice. Um, We all agreed upon talking about tonight's subject, which is my nomination, Pink Floyd, The Wall. So before we get into it, I certainly want to make sure that I let you all know who I brought along with me, who is always with me, both in physical form and in spirit form. Stephen, are you out there? Is anybody out there?
2: Uh, Yes, I'm right here. I'm I'm sorry about uh, my delay there. I was tending to my little black book that I've got my poems in right here.
1: I hope that you also brought your bag with the toothbrush and a comb.
2: Well, of course I have, because, uh, you know, I've got second sight, and I know that every day I should brush my teeth and comb my hair.
1: (laughs) But, Stephen, who is that outside your bedroom window? Who do you have with you
2: that would be eric his wife kicked him out again
3: <laughs> uh hi i'm here eric anderson uh walking around steve's house asking if he wants to take a bath um just generally a, a a steve groupie over here um and uh happy to be on this third season of pod like a whole thanks for not replacing me in the season break guys
2: yes
1: yeah we had a staff meeting. Um, thankfully, the board of directors ruled in your favor because of all of the extracurricular work that you do. Not only by promoting it, marketing it, um, I believe that you put some of your own money down for T-shirts and mugs. So we're going to get those off the assembly line very soon. Um, yeah. So yes,
0: yeah. Well,
3: oh, good. I'm glad my my efforts have been noticed. Oh yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and honestly,
2: you have you have COVID to thank for it. And uh, it's it's because we're still doing this remotely. And, you know, the fact that if we had to do it in person, I don't know if we could have you on the show still. It would be tough to come up with excuses for you to come into either Mark or I's house every couple of weeks. Uh, our wives are tired of you, and they haven't seen you since last year, probably. Oh,
3: God. But, um,
2: <laughs> yes, the fact that we're not doing the show in the flesh... Still is why you're still here for now.
3: I, I have definitely worn out my welcomes. I That's true.
1: And the board of directors right now is not approving any further hires. Uh, we're kind of in a job freeze, if you will. Um, we have a draft ready to post on ZipRecruiter, who is not yet a sponsor, which I don't know why. Um, but uh, yeah, you're on what we call the thin ice. <laughs>
3: i uh, i'll 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 work four times as hard fellas you know guys uh has the uh the,
2: the those fires that we've dealt with a lot since we last recorded an episode they uh been really smoky and um for a while I was saying goodbye blue skies but uh the air's blue again, but for a while I was saying goodbye blue
1: skies absolutely, yes. Um, and we always were wondering, I mean, as I looked outside and seeing not as many cars, I was wondering how we were going to fill all those empty spaces, you know, it's just,
3: <laughs> uh, all right. Mm.
1: We are on a roll.
0: <laughs> right.
3: And I'm sipping this beer to be comfortably, what's the comfortably calm? <laughs> how'd, I, how'd I do guys?
1: You better run like hell, Eric. That's all I have to say.
3: All right, this is uh, this is atrocious. <laughs> you keep that up, and
2: uh, hey, you will be waiting for the worms.
1: <laughs> hey, is one of I on trial over here?
2: <laughs> all right, yeah. We promised that we would get rid of a lot of the the. We poly- know we didn't promise anything, but we decided we would uh, we would jettison after years of doing it some of the preliminary talk we do in the episodes like the year of talk and uh this that and the other thing but um i think that now starting every episode with five minutes of puns based off the track titles is a, a suitable replacement so we'll see if we keep that up
1: oh man oh i can't wait till the ice cube episode
2: Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Uh you did your best dennis miller there and you didn't even realize it
1: <laughs> uh Oh boy! I what old Dennis Miller thinks of Ice Cube? Oh man, yeah, he's probably, you know, going to make some reference that uh, would make even like Donald Trump blush. And <laughs> speaking of which, uh, it is funny. And as we discuss, as we go into this album track by track, I'm sure all three of us and pretty much anyone who has studied this album in our current environment are seeing. Is Trump just basing all of this off the wall? That's, uh... <laughs> I wa
2: I, I wish he was that smart. But yes, it actually I mean I the uh, we will get I'm gonna give you the steering wheel in a second, Mark, but uh the the reason why I didn't even want to watch the movie again, which I do enjoy, was because it was like, oh man, I feel like I'm living the movie right now. I don't want exactly. to
1: watch this. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Being just shut into like a one small room while everything outside and you're wondering if it's all in your head. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I I know what you're saying. So.
3: Well, I think uh, Stephen Miller listened to one, al- well, two albums. He listened to Screwdriver's Greatest Hits and The Wall. And that's what he's been whispering. Uh, must
1: be. Yeah. yeah. Build that wall. <laughs> all right. So let's tear no further. I think we should get into uh, a little bit about who Pink Floyd are. What the background of this album is And of course then go into track by track Seeing how I nominated it This is essentially going to be A very shotgun blast of information about Pink Floyd That uh And as I said guys Feel free to jump in anytime If you have anything that you would like to add So Pink Floyd If you've lived under a rock um, and This album that we're going to be talking about Is a huge cultural touchstone In terms of modern music Uh, It is essentially seen as the quintessential concept record. Um, And, I mean, if you think about it, it was absolutely designed to be something that was made more for a theatrical uh, 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 experience. But before I get into that, um, let me talk about where Pink Floyd actually came from. Uh, They were formed in 1965 in London, and at the time the members were Sid Barrett, Roger Waters, Nick Mason, and Richard Wright. Sid Barrett on guitars, Roger Waters on bass, Nick Mason on drums, and Richard Wright on keyboards. And they really started themselves as a really a psychedelic band. I mean, it was probably the furthest thing, if you go back to their first record, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, It sounds like a completely different band um, than what you get in the late 70s with Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here, Animals, and The Wall. But in 1968, they had to actually kick out Sid Barrett um, because he was really heavily getting involved into LSD, the drug scene, and he most likely had himself a little bit of a mental... um, uh, uh, mental illness, uh, he certainly was probably not equipped to handle mentally being uh, the frontman for a rock group. He became very uh, unreliable and during performances um, and to the point where when Roger, Nick and Richard were like we really want to make something of this and so they asked a mutual friend of Sid and the rest of the band to replace him and that is David Gilmore. Um, initially, they wanted to do kind of like a Beach Boys thing, where like kind of like Brian Wilson, you know, was also going through some things, and they were like, well, maybe he shouldn't just go on tour, but maybe he'll be just a studio member. But even then, they, they couldn't really carry on with Sid in that in that regard.
2: Yeah, they never. Yeah. It wasn't like uh, it wasn't like Guns and Roses where they kicked out Steven Adler because he couldn't play the drums on time because he was on heroin. I. They didn't even. They didn't kick him out. Uh, they tried to come up, like you said, with a version of the band that could continue with Sid and his problems. And this was the late sixties. And I doubt they had any idea really what was going on with him. And I don't think he had any idea what was going on with him. I'm sure he saw doctors and he was maybe misdiagnosed. He definitely had some kind of personality disorder and um, yeah, it just, it didn't work out. And the, the next album they put out, uh, he was on one song with the rest of the band, I think, and then he left the band, but I, I don't I don't think they pushed him out. I do think, though, and you're going to hear some of that on the record tonight, that there was some regret with uh, how they couldn't do more for him, I think.
1: Absolutely. I mean, uh, part of that whole experience with Sid, uh, the character that we'll talk about later, his name is Pink, um, and they... It was kind of a, uh, a cross between how Roger Waters himself was feeling about fame and the whole rock star persona, um, and also um, feeling a little guilty about how they really just let Sid kind of hang out to dry. And of course, it's uh, if you have any sense of what's going on musically, uh, the whole album, Wish You Were Here, is essentially an overture to Sid Barrett, um, but... Yeah, they replaced uh, him with David Gilmour, who is a phenomenal guitar player, but uh, Sid Barrett was really the lyrical driving force of Pink Floyd, and that means someone had to step up and become that primary force. Um, So that was filled by Roger Waters. He brought the lyrics, he brought the whole concept, he brought the ideas... Um, whereas David Gilmour was really bringing a sense of musicality. Uh, He has a really good sense of composition, and he became almost the driving musical force. And the two of them together, it was truly a yin-yang situation. They needed each other in order to survive um, in terms of being so successful. And the the peak of Pink Floyd is essentially those two, with Nick and Richard really complementing... The fireworks show that was happening between Roger and Dave.
2: Yeah, there's a, there's a good. If anybody wants a good podcast all about that, I suggest that podcast I brought up before called Rivals, um, with uh, Stephen Hyden and his guest host, host whose name I can never remember, and they do an episode on Roger Waters and David Gilmore. and it's a very good listen. I suggest it to anybody. That might want to know more about their story because we don't have time to go into it tonight in depth.
1: Right. Um, so in 1979, uh, you know, Pink Floyd come out with The Wall. They had already achieved uh, huge success with Dark Side of the Moon in 1973. I mean, it broke pretty much every record of how many consistent weeks it, it landed on the Billboard Top 200, and that was them just becoming now selling out stadiums, and then after uh, Dark Side of the Moon, they followed it up with Wish You Were Here, which was also a very good commercial success. And then Animals, not as much, but they had already become notorious for their live shows with lasers and just extremely cool effects and just their musicianship, so they were already getting a following. But it was on the Animals tour um, where Roger... Waters was getting extremely just frustrated Um, he just was not he was frustrated with himself with his fans with his band and famously the wall it came to fruition when um, during a show for the animals tour he just snapped and he spit in a fan's face who was just excited and he was just disgusted with this fan's excitement um, it kind of reminds me of a time when uh, me and Steve went and saw uh, Nivek Ogre's Skinny Puppy. And we, we saw him in a, like a small club. I'm going off on a small digression here. And we kept asking him, screaming at him, because we were right in the front row, to play the song Poor. Uh, it was a song off of his first record. And we were like, I'll pay you 20 bucks to play that song. And finally, he had enough And so he lunged at me and Steve and says, I will pay you 20 bucks to stop fucking saying that. So. Yes.
2: (laughs) Uh, A couple of notes. Um, We were both 18 or 19 at the time. And uh, also after the show, we met him backstage and he couldn't have been nicer.
1: (laughs) Couldn't have been nicer. He was great. He signed (laughs) uh, both of our records. We were sheepishly like, Oh fuck. Uh, But I mean, he's one of our heroes for crying out loud. And, it was just we were in the moment. We were really excited about the record and just being able to see him like right there. Uh, but that's a digression. But thankfully he didn't spit in our face. Um,
3: you deserve sure. you deserve that
1: though. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we we're obnoxious little shitheads. Um, but anyways, uh, so Roger Waters had one more album left in him before he decided to cut ties with um, with Pink Floyd and hopefully just end Pink Floyd. So it. 1983, after the release of The Final Cut, which is essentially outtakes of The Wall, um, he decided to leave and go solo. Uh, But uh, Dave Gilmore really wanted to continue. Um, He continued with Nick Mason and Richard Wright. um, And then he was sued by Roger Waters. Uh, Also worth noting is that Richard Wright was actually fired during the sessions for The Wall but then rehired as a studio musician and ended up making probably the most money out of all of the band members because he was a hired musician rather than someone who was part of the band. It makes no sense, but I also, a part is. of that
2: was because um, when they did the live shows of which they did um, four different locations, I'm not sure of how many dates it was such a production that the band members also lost money and he didn't have to pay. To, to put the shows together. That's right. A hired musician there. That's right. So, and uh, Roger Waters, who has, I'll bring this up a few times tonight. Uh, he's calmed down in his old age and he definitely, he reflects upon how he treated others, his wives, his bandmates. And he, he definitely kind of feels like an asshole for how he fired Richard Wright. Um, if you read enter, if you read or watch any interview with him from the last 14 years, he's chilled out immensely.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about some of the extra credit material that I would recommend. And one of those, or a couple of those, are actually some of his solo records. Uh, but so in 1987, Gilmore, Mason, and Wright um, released Momentary Lapse of Reason. Uh, it definitely was a different sound. Uh, they sold out huge stadiums. Those three went on to release three more albums before finally retiring Pink Floyd. Um, the third album was really essentially outtakes from The Division Bell. Um there was an acrimony just sniping between uh, Gilmore and Waters uh, pretty much up until, I mean, even to this day, I mean, they're not exactly best friends. Um, but Bob Geldof, who ends up playing Pink in the movie version of The Wall, who's in the band The Boomtown Rats, and he actually uh, was an organizer of Live Aid, and then 2002 he got Live 8 altogether. Um, And he was able to essentially broker a peace uh, deal between Waters, Mason, Gilmore and Wright and they got together to play a set. And that was essentially the last time Pink Floyd played live, uh, the four of them together. And uh, in 2008, uh, Richard Wright passed away with cancer and uh, Sid Barrett has also passed away in 2006, also with cancer. Um, But uh, that's where we are. They're a classic band. I mean, I'm sure if you turn on the radio right now, um, you'll either hear Comfortably Numb playing somewhere or even Another Brick in the Wall part two. Uh, But they're one of my favorite bands of all time, hands down. So that's Pink Floyd. Um, For me personally, uh, I came upon Pink Floyd with this particular album. My dad was a fan of both The Wall and Dark Side of the Moon. And so they were constantly playing on his car that he had burned from his vinyl collection. And the one song that really was uh, when I was a young kid was The Trial, because uh, it sounds like a stage musical. It sounds like right out of a twisted Disney cartoon. Um, so I was really into that. And then he kind of told me a little bit about the story of the, sh- of the, uh, of the album and how it related to Sid. And uh, it just really fascinated me. And then when I really started to get really uh, deep into music, uh, Pink Floyd was one of those bands that I just constantly, constantly listen to. I mean, all things considered, uh, The Wall is kind of my version of Star Wars, if you think about it. Um, I I know this album like the back of my hand. I listen to it probably at least 10 times, 15 times a year. Um, And I've done this probably since I was in 7th or 8th grade. Um, I I love this band so much. And uh, do do you guys have any background? I know, Steve, you do. Uh, why don't you share a little bit about... like? your history with Pink Floyd. Uh,
2: yes, I definitely think Pink Floyd is a dad rock band because they also, I mean, they were one of the most popular bands of all time in the 70s. So many of our dads were listening to them. And my dad definitely got me into them. Um, but also it was interesting because they were one of the few bands that both my parents agreed on when they were married. Uh, my mother is also a fan. And uh, yeah, we, they celebrated the majority of their catalog. Uh, I heard a lot of dark side of the moon and wish you were here growing up and the wall. Um, and then I remember my, my father, he used to play the guitar now and again, he would play some songs off. Wish you were here. He would try to play comfortably numb. I think he actually did a decent job of it. Uh, he had that box set with the, the ladies with the butts on the cover. And I, loved it when he got that Had this giant hardback book that told the history of the band that was in the early nineties. I poured over that thing. That was one of my first experiences with the, the idea of a, the mythology of a band. Um, and I thought it was incredible. I big, I'm a fan of most of all the records. I don't listen to the early, early stuff as much as I do the middle stuff, which is, I think the majority of people think, um, And, uh, yeah, I, I don't listen to the wall as often as Mark does. I go through phases where I listen to it a lot, especially this year, Uh, even before we started the podcast, I was just, for some reason, the wall was the album I wanted to listen to, uh, the, the week before my kid was born, I sat in the corner and listened to the wall all the way through with headphones on. I can't remember the last time I've done that, uh, before the podcast episode for it. And, uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a great achievement. It can be overwhelming at times, but I've always liked it. And when Mark and I were teenagers, I remember riding around listening to it in his truck, specifically the song Waiting for the Worms for some reason. I always remember driving that truck somewhere, listening to Waiting for the Worms. I don't know why that song. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's Pink Floyd, man. It's, uh, I'm sure two-thirds of our listeners are, are big fans themselves. It's hard not to be. And my first concert was my uh, stepmom got sick. So in seventh grade, my dad had two tickets to see the Pulse tour. And we went to Oakland Coliseum and saw that it was my first concert. It was my first and only Pink Floyd concert. And it was also the first time I smelled marijuana. So that was a interesting evening. It was a good time. Those I like, I, I like we might talk more in the extra credit, but I, I actually like the David Gilmore era of Floyd and the live shows. It's pretty new agey there's something
3: to it i enjoy anyhow i'm a, a big fan
1: how about you eric any any history with pink floyd
3: yeah i uh not as much um it was around growing up my dad is a big psychedelic rock fan um that's his real you know meat and potatoes and he had he had amagama and he had metal and I remember those those being played, and I even sought those out like I'd go through my dad's record- record collection when I was younger and just check out some stuff I was interested in um always knew that they were they were they ended up becoming a lot more artsy than than what I think my parents are into and so some of their bigger albums weren't always part of my um my childhood although my my dad had a friend who was obsessed and he had every box set on display at his house and so I remember thinking like at the very least oh man this the art direction of this band is amazing um and then uh really just getting into Primus have a cigar uh uh I was like okay okay Primus likes Pink Floyd uh all right so maybe there's something more to them worth digging into and then over the years I, I, I'm sure I've listened to a lot of the albums here and there um you know, for, for, uh, just for whatever reason, it uh, just hasn't got its hooks in me as an all timer Eric band, but that's not to say anything about the quality of it whatsoever. Um, I know I've heard this album before, uh, although my memory of hearing this album is a high school memory. First time I ever smoked pot, my hippie friend uh, who had a hemp necklace and tie-dye shirts and hair down to his ass. Uh, had us watch, uh, the, the film. And, um, though I knew some of the songs, uh, the, just the images of that movie, I'll, I'll ever, forever connected to the album. So I guess some of them meant the theater of mind, I guess was lost, lost on me. Cause I had the movie to go with it. Um, and I can imagine that being pretty amazing to have gotten to the album before the movie. Um, so yeah, this is my first deep dive into this album. I'm not a complete stranger to Pink Floyd, um, but yeah, this is my, this is my first time uh, going in, gritting my teeth and, and uh, diving into the adventure. I
2: was actually, I was actually jealous when you told me the night you were doing that. I do I was actually, I was happy for you and I was excited. And I also was jealous that, that you know, I, I would have, it, it, it's one of those ones to discover it for the, to really discover it for the first time must be thrilling.
3: It was. Yeah. So as we talk about this uh, and my, a lot of my notes are taken from two Saturdays ago I said, okay, I've heard it, but I haven't heard it. And I'm gonna go in and uh, and put headphones on and really get into it. And um it was it was it was pretty awesome. And you can't really say that about a ton of albums that it's just like an experience, kind of pretty unforgettable experience.
1: You know, the one beautiful thing about this particular record is no matter how many times that I've heard it it is almost like you're experiencing a ride every single time and you're noticing the little nuances and subtleties that are kind of hidden in the, the cracks. Um, I, I think the the production on here is uh, light years ahead of its time in terms of what they were doing, kind of creating an environment that... Uh, uh, it is essentially a play that acts out in your mind. Um, I just... it's a, I give not only uh, Roger Waters, just a ton of credit for creating something and then really putting it together. And it just, it seems to be executed almost flawlessly for what he envisioned. There's not that filter of like, well, this is kind of what I'm thinking of. I just feel like you are stepping into the artist's mind and being able to experience it the way that he wants the audience to experience it. And I don't really feel that we get that a lot. Uh, there are certain records out there. I, I mean I would say the Downward Spiral does this pretty well as well. But this one I think is kind of the Rosetta Stone for anyone that's making a concept record. That uh, this is the one they need to study to see how it's done correctly. Um but that's just my opinion. Some people think that Pink Floyd is, is just this um uh overindulgent just masturbatory band that um is you know just doing it for the money essentially and I just I don't see it that way I see that these are artists at the peak of their game that you just don't really see that often I mean it's always this record has always been cited and multiple of their albums have always been cited as some of the best records ever produced in the genre of rock music or even just popular music and it just always blows my hair back. Always, yeah. You
2: can't. No, uh, you know. I. Uh, any anybody that follows rock music knows that if they've listened to them, uh, "Dark Side of the Moon," "Wish You Were Here," "Animals," and "The Wall," uh, you can you can rarely will you find four albums of that quality back to back to back from one band. And on top of that, I would say uh, metal is pretty damn good. As well, which which came out before Dark Side of the Moon. That's it's absolutely. Like, it's yeah. like four A pluses and a B plus. It's you know,
1: absolutely. Great. Yeah, you just don't really see like a solid just run through of albums that are just just instant classics. Um, so, a little bit about the background of the of the album. Uh, like I, had, uh, it, it was released in 1979. Um, it uh, took over almost a full year to record. Um, the majority of it was recorded in Britannia Row Studios over in uh, the UK. At first, uh, Roger Waters presented two new ideas for the concept albums. One was with the working title Bricks in the Wall. And the other one was uh, about a man's dreams across one night dealt with marriage, sex, and uh, being monogamous and really embracing a family life versus a life of promiscuity. And that album uh, went on to become Roger Waters' first solo album, The Pro, uh, Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking. Uh, but the band decided, let's let's take a look at that Bricks in the Wall demo and uh, off to the races. Um, like I had mentioned earlier, all of this really came from a feeling of self-isolation uh, that Roger Waters was just feeling about how he uh, was behaving around, you know, this new rock and roll lifestyle where they're selling out stadiums and just thousands of people. I mean, I can't even imagine that feeling of being able to be the single focus of 30,000 to 60,000 people watching you perform your craft. That would be insane.
2: Especially when you're a band like Pink Floyd, who were, Psychedelic bluesy prog, if you will, for lack of a better term, they're not. You know, they're 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 sometimes lumped in as progressive, as one of the originators, even. But they're not like Yes or King Crimson, where there's a the whole bunch of a uh, jazz tandents. But my point being, they were not your typical. They weren't Kiss, but they were s- selling quite a bit to where. I mean, Dark Side of the Moon is one of the most sold records of all time. They didn't have the mentality of Kiss. But then they had the following of a band like Kiss. And what's that do to a fucking art school nerd like Roger Waters, which I don't know if he was, but let's just call him one. You know, he didn't set out to be a rock star. So what's, how do you process that?
1: Exactly. And I mean, uh, when he, it's also worth noting that as he's experiencing all this and feeling the weight of the band is on his shoulders. And as he's trying to push the band forward and forward, you know he's not a dictator, and you know David Gilmore, Nick Mason, and Richard Wright are not going to have a say. But if you feel like you're having the weight of the world, sometimes you're going to want to push people away, thinking like I am the only one responsible for keeping this going. Leave me the fuck alone, and that's essentially what potentially. Uh, you could see like why they broke up. I mean, Roger Waters was at the peak of like, oh my God, I, it was like a burning star. It was going to explode if there wasn't any sort of, I guess, release. And, uh, you know, the wall was uh, trying to be that release, but, uh, then it just became, it just amplified the more and more to be like, this band is on another level. And of course, when they're creating a stage show, it's trying to sell even more tickets, because they were in financial straits, I mean, they made a ton of money with Dark side of the moon, but their management fucked it up, and just uh they faced extremely high tax rates and just mismanagement of money and funds and you know they were just never like even though they were achieving success both critically and commercially, they weren't doing it financially, and it's just one of those things that uh, the industry Seems backwards on just completely just putting artists through of this meat grinder and just produce more, produce more, and then just keeping the, the money for themselves. But we'll get into that. Uh, but uh, so they brought in Bob Ezrin, who was a producer and collaborator who really needed to kind of keep the things focused. Uh, if you remember uh, for our longtime listeners, Bob Ezrin was also brought in when Trent was putting together the Fragile. He's just really good at keeping things together, organized. He wasn't a producer. He was more of a consultant on that record, but here he was essentially the lion tamer between, uh, Roger waters and, um, Dave Gilmore. But
3: uh, no, I, I just want to interject here that yeah. there, one cannot overestimate the importance of a good sequence of an album. And I feel right. like that was Ezra's Ezrin's big, like that's his forte was, uh, was sequence and, and, and mixing track to
1: track. Right. I mean, of course, Roger was the alpha dog. He was absolutely, you know, throwing his dick on the tables every time that he could and be like, look, man, you know, I'm Pink Floyd. Let's just fucking relax. And so, but at the same time, like he did bring a little bit of uh, cohesion to the whole equation here.
2: The whole, the, the whole, there was like a production team of, uh, David and Roger Waters. Um, but then yeah, Bob Ezrin produced and helped sequence. And also Michael Kamen had a lot to do with it because he did some of the orchestral stuff that came from him. And his, his name probably rings a bell because I think he's one of the more famous modern uh, classical artists out there. And then a gentleman named James Guthrie was uh, one of the engineers as well.
1: That's right. And then uh, Michael Kamen uh, was certainly, if you listen to what's Essentially considered a sequel to The Wall. Um, I don't personally think, I mean, you can kind of see some of the concepts, but uh, it sounds like a collection of B sides on the final cut. Um, but The Final Cut sounds more like a Roger Waters solo record, um, than anything else, uh, that Pink Floyd's ever produced. So that's pretty much the background. I think, um, the best way to really further talk about this album is actually going through track by track. Uh, unless you feel that I missed anything in any of your research. Yeah,
3: no, I just wanted to say like um, uh, concept albums. Uh, and I feel like um, in a recent bonus episode that we just released where I interviewed uh, Adam Steiner, his book kind of breaks down two different kind of concept albums that are out there. You have your thematic concept albums, which is your downward spiral, where it's a bunch of, standalone tracks that all run together with theme and you can kind of use imagination to put a plot together. If you, if you would, and then you have a narrative concept album where it is, every song advances the story a uh, very specifically. And um, this would definitely be the latter. It's essentially a rock opera uh, where every, you know, every track, um, every, I mean, there are tracks that do stand alone but if you took a, a track off this album the story would miss, would be would have a big gap missing and so i just kind of wanted to explain cuz i i i do enjoy the a concept album and uh i just i feel like this definitely falls more in that that um narrative uh version
2: yeah i do i do think i mean the narrative is great uh but at the end of the day if the songs weren't great we wouldn't even be talking about this album so i i i i do think it's a uh, it's a it's a it's a two two handed punch, if you will um, I don't know what the hell my point is, but I can tell you, I did want to bring up that what I find interesting about this record is that the critical reception was not it was not a slam dunk. a lot of people thought it was a you know like whoa, this is a lot to take in and some some of the the critics out there kind of accused waters of being self indulgent, which well, yes, he did just make the band write a double album about his own issues, but it, it sold very well coming. It it sold great when it came out and it has three hit singles that we'll talk about that. You could turn on the radio now and hear anytime. And despite the fact that Rolling Stone at the time gave it three stars, they also called it the 87th out of the 500 greatest albums of all time. So even if at the beginning of its release, people didn't know what to make of it, its reputation just grew over the years. And I think now it's considered an all-time classic album.
1: I mean, absolutely. Uh, This uh, concept record with a strong narrative that Eric uh, was talking about, it lended itself to a theatrical film. It was released in 1982. And it uh, had Ellen Parker as the director. It starred Bob Geldof as Pink. Um, There was a couple extra songs that were featured in the Wall movie. We'll probably talk a little bit about those when we discuss the record. Um, had some animation from Gerald Scarf, and uh, it's a very disjointed al- uh, film, but it certainly is a great companion piece um, to th- to the album as a whole.
2: Yeah, it's ri- it's written by Roger Waters, so I mean it's it's not it, it's it's it, In a lot of cases, you don't want a like music video to taint your vision of what you think a song is about. I think this album is so strong that you could see the wall and still listen to it and still have your own images in your head. But it is great that the movie, when it was realized it's, it's still from the artist who can conceive this whole thing. It's all, it's all Roger Waters and the guys that he brought along with him. still.
1: So um, we'll take a quick break. um, But when we come back, we'll go ahead and discuss the album track by track.
3: Hey there stranger, Hey, <laughs> you see me, smiling Eddie, you hear my beautiful brother Gus playing that banjo music over there? You can only be in one place, that's right, wall to wall walls. That's right, your favorite wall emporium, nothing but wall stuff here. That's right, hey, you want to buy yourself a little miniature of the Great Wall of China? <laughs> we got you. Uh, you want to uh, purchase a brick to put in our president's wall down at the southern border? <laughs> I'll give you the papers to sign it over right here. You want to hire a crew to build a retaining wall in your backyard? (laughs) We actually don't don't do that. Well, hey, we got a new deal going on right now. We're partnering with the boys at Pod Like a Hole, your favorite music podcast. And they're inspired by their season three premiere, Pink Floyd, The Wall. They want to help you build a wall of nostalgia. You want a wall of nostalgia? They got two full seasons of nostalgia for you. You a 90s kid growing up? They got a whole season about Nine Inch Nails and all of the surrounding musical acts. You come up with that glam rock music in the 70s, or hey, what about that 80s pop? Hey, they got got a whole season about David Bowie. That's right. They got what you need in season three? Well, they're going to talk about any old thing. So listen, the best part of this deal is it doesn't cost any money. It's free. Uh, All they ask in return is you maybe interact with them on their Facebook or Twitter. Let them know what you think about the albums. Leave them an iTunes review, or hey, I can tell you're a real big roller, aren't you? You're a real high roller. That's right, you're big daddy in those pants. You know what you could do? You could throw them a few bones over Patreon, like a little uh, digital tip jar. That's right, just show your appreciation that way. Yeah, and you act right now, they're gonna give you a piece, an actual piece broken off of the Berlin Wall. Uh, I don't have any way to authenticate that, but I think you can just trust them. Hey Gus, tell them more that the good people can throw uh, throw a few bones to the Pod Like a Hole Boys.
1: Patreon.com slash Pod Like a Hole.
3: Wee, Gus! Alright, put some stank on that.
1: All right, so we're going to start out with uh, track one on the wall. It is In the Flesh, question mark, or I should probably say In the Flesh. So let's hear a little bit of that. came in if you hear really closely that's what really starts the album and we'll get back to what that potentially means but uh this album or this song introduces us to the story of pink who's a rock star it begins with the opening of a rock concert and if just to give you a little background and i'll let uh Steve and eric then fight it out like dogs um it's uh, really setting the scene about what's going on here, um, who Pink is, and what we're going to get ourselves into. When they would play this song live uh, in those live productions, they actually had the uh, the roadies come out dressed as the band Pink Floyd and wearing rubber masks. If you happen to pick up the live album of The Wall officially by Pink Floyd from the early eighties you'll see those masks on the front cover. Um, but before I discuss my personal opinion, I want to hear what Steve and Eric have to say about this song. Um,
2: i well, which one of us is going to go It's Eric. Go ahead.
3: All right. Yeah. I, this is a, it's a cool opener. It starts with some like FM radio sounds, um, and the drums, the drum effects are great. They're big and echoey kind of forward thinking. um, to uh you know uh, 80s production um and it's just like this is musical theater this is like an awesome intro it uh he's basically telling you welcome to the show do you want to see uh do you want to be entertained or do you want to see below the surface and basically he's kind of setting up his whole mission statement right there um you know if you want to find out what's behind these cold eyes you'll have to claw your way through this disguise is like uh You know, I just, I, I, it's what he wants to talk about. Like there is a human being under this, this rock star. And um, in in addition, it's his narrator for the story. And we are going to go under the surface uh, very soon. It's a great intro. And the fact that it comes, it's basically a flashback. It's, it's him during a later part in his life. um, Essentially the fascist part of his life that we'll get to. Um, How did I get to this point? We flashback. All I got to say about music is I love the huge guitars that just don't like that build up just big thick guitars. When I hear, um, you know, when I hear that, that this was a inspiration for downward spiral, I hear some production techniques in this song that really do make me think of some, at least uh, uh Trent Reznor's guitar, guitar production. Um, Anyways, uh, cool open. That's all I got.
2: Yeah. I, I love this song. Um, To Eric's point, that guitar riff gives me goosebumps almost every time I hear it. Uh, it just, it makes me nostalgic, but also I think it's just a really good riff. It's re it's one of the many reoccurring motifs in the album. Um, and as an opener, yeah, just the welcoming everybody to the show. It's, you know, we've talked about in the past, it's kind of fun when there's a, on a few Bowie albums in particular, that and Year Zero, when it's like, here you are at the play. But this is a lot more sinister than that because you are actually, yes, you're at the, the play, but also at the point, uh, pink is at, you're also at a fascist rally possibly. Um, the lyrics are great. Roger Waters, I think is a, gr- uh, a great lyricist. Sometimes he could be a little too on the nose on this album. I think he is the top of his game. These lyrics, even though there's not many of them, they're great for a few reasons. For one, I like the, the lights roll, the sound effects action. Yeah, it's the theater of the mind. And this was a album before it was a movie, but they let you know they're telling a story and the vocal effects they do on the lights, roll the sound effects action is great. Sounds like he's speaking through like a megaphone. You're going to get a whole bunch of filters and megaphones on this record. Uh, Since the album was the genesis of it had to do with Roger Waters trying to figure out what to do between him and his audience, among other things. The so you thought you would like to go to the show to feel the warm thrill of confusion, the space cadet glow. He's talking about when these fans would show up at a pink Floyd show, they were expecting that trippy pink Floyd, man, those space cadets. And he picked the perfect, just two line phrase to sum up. That's what you came for. But guess what? Pink Floyd fans, (laughs) the wall is not that. And he basically, he's, he's warning the audience that this is not your typical pink Floyd album. And you're going to go through some crazy shit when you when you see what's behind the, these cold, cold eyes. Drop the tab before you got here. You're going to regret it, buddy. Yeah, it's just uh, it's I, I think it's pretty cool. imagine being in 1979 and being a total Floyd head and you buy this album. And if you're really reading along, you're, you're just hearing this heavier than Pink Floyd's probably ever been. And these words and you probably would be like, I am uh, this is I'm kind of frightened. It's a great opening. I dig it. And I I I love the fact that it's uh in the flesh question mark, then later in the album it's in the flesh.
1: God, that is that is so great. I mean, that uh I mean, both of you are are spot on. Um and you're absolutely right. He comes out like a cabaret MC um warning the audience like hold on to your fucking seatbelts here this is going to be one bumpy ride with so yeah thacha might like to go to the show like how he delivers that and you know you get that feeling when you do go to a concert like you're around people like minded who are all there to celebrate the artist and the band and the music and here he is going to lay down like this is going to be an emotional journey. So, you think like to your point Steve about having that space cadet glow, you know, just that moonbeam sunshine feeling. But here's a whole bunch of cold water I'm about to pour onto you. Um is a perfect way to start this um experience and you pointed it out like Roger Waters kind of dictating stage directions you hear like a dive bomb sound effect going from one headphone to the other or speaker to the other speaker you get the crowd essentially chanting pink floyd at, um in there it kind of reminds me if you look at antichrist superstar by marilyn manson of how it starts with irresponsible hate anthem It's kind of like Marilyn Manson was doing a nod to In the Flesh on that. We'll get
2: to that later, because I think that the In the Flesh period, they definitely, I think, Antichrist Superstar title track was lifted from that. Yes. I see that, yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, it's, like I said, the Rosetta Stone, the template of really concept records talking about the the push pull of fame and rock star and being put on a pedestal and what it does to the human psyche. Uh, it's, uh, something that gets revisited time and time again. Um, we, yeah,
0: we, we, we,
2: we, you pointed out that something cool they do on this, that also is done on antichrist superstar and scary monsters is that this final sound you hear in the album is the start of the album. It's a loop. Um that's right. Roger Waters was loved this kind of shit. Or Pink Floyd did in general. Dark Side starts and ends with a heartbeat. Uh, Sh- uh wish you were here starts and ends with the song Shining Your Crazy Diamond. It's two parts. And then Animals starts and ends with uh pigs in a wing. And this one starts with a loop as well. And I just I I Roger Waters dug cycles, uh I I think that uh it's, it's right there in the, on the page in front of you.
1: Yeah, I honestly, I didn't really make the connection until, you know, you have to listen closely for him to say where we came in, and you'll, as we talk about the last track, you'll see what that means. Um, Marilyn Manson would do that on Hollywood. It sounds like someone's loading a gun, um, and there's a little bit of that going on there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this this song gives me chills. Love it.
2: Eric, did you ever did you ever finish The Dark Tower? No, sir. All right, never mind. There's actually similarities between The Wall and The Dark Tower I made in my uh my last listen that I will not go into. That's actually if you pay for the Patreon, I will email you my connections between The Wall and The Dark Tower. That's a promise.
1: I mean the hive mind the steric chamberstad uh mind is working overtime here because I did think of the dark tower of how it's a cycle the man in black you know the opening line of the dark tower the gunslinger um the man in black crosses the desert while the gunslinger followed or something like that I I don't have it verbatim but it's kind of that same idea um and essentially no spoilers kind of has a cycle effect to it yeah um good call steve um all right so let's go ahead and uh, go into track two which is the thin ice if you should go skating
0: on the thin ice
1: So that was the thin ice uh eric tell me what you think about this track
3: well this track i this may be weird but uh at times in the last week i've listened to this album five times at times sometimes i think it's my favorite track on the album which is which is weird because it's it's not as dynamic as some other songs on here but uh it is uh it's a cool song, and I mean cool and uh, I'm having a little word play there, a little fun with words there because it has a very icy synth background. the piano is playing a, an icy a kind of thing and um it is it's it's a ballad essentially, but it's got a melody that um keeps the momentum of the album going forward um You know, it's, if I should go skating on thin ice of modern life, dragging behind you, the silent reproach, a million tear stained eyes. Don't be surprised when a crack in the ice. I, I think I,
1: what a line, what a line. I I agree
3: with Steve that, uh, Roger Waters is sometimes on the nose and even the album itself, the wall Mm -hmm. bricks in the wall, his metaphors are very obvious and simple, but his heart is on his sleeve the whole time that it's genuine and it doesn't feel, um, it do, it doesn't feel slight, or uh, you know what I mean. It doesn't feel like slight at all. It, it, you could feel the weight because it's a very emotional album for him. So um, you know the obvious metaphors are, are definitely forgivable and enjoyable, uh, to be honest. Um, and this song is, uh, I think, essentially about, you know, um, Mama loves her baby, Daddy loves you too. The sea may look warm, the sky may look blue. Don't be surprised with the crack in the ice piercing to your feet. It's like, you know, when you're a child, you don't know. And all you feel is, you know, the love or, or, or the lack of it, but this is your world. And, um, and then what happens when it all goes away or essentially what happens when his dad dies, which is, which is coming straight up. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a sad song. It's done from a kid's point of view, but it's not, it's written from a, a mature standpoint as well. Um, and I just love the sound and the atmosphere of the song. I think it's I think it's a great track too. Uh, I'm a big fan, and um, that's my two cents. Well, songs. I don't
2: think it's weird that you, this sometimes this is your favorite song. It's not one of my favorites, but I'd say this album has like a ton of songs that are almost my favorites, and a few that are not. There's usually just a, you can pick a lot of songs in this record where I just my mind's always into it. I, I love this song. Uh, Roger Waters' "Delivery" uh, is very. Uh, biting, I guess. I don't know. He's got, he can be shrill. He is. He has a shrill sound to his voice. I don't think his voice is for everyone, but it, 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 he managed to know when to, he managed to know when he should sing. And he knew when David should sing or both of them worked it out. And I think it, it's perfect on this album. The, this is a delivery of the dragging behind you, the silent reproach of a million tear stained eyes. I, I love that line. And, uh, yeah, the the whole kind of doo effect of the pianos will come by. There'll be a couple doo moments on this record. Works well. And, yeah, the thin ice, I think, uh, to extrapolate on kind of what Eric was going for, is that it, it doesn't take much for modern life to just descend into chaos like a David Lynch movie. And, you know, the, 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 the everything's held by, by, it. everything's held together by a thread. And, uh, it doesn't take much to fall through the cracks into the uh, into the waters, and you can't beat the big guitar riffs that come in, uh, and the second half of the song and the the thundering drums, and Roger or David Gilmore, man, he he is one of the kings of uh the fill. Like down, 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 He just loves to just, he loves to get his notes in when he can. I mean, he's not showy. He's not a. He's not an Eddie Van Halen. He doesn't jam pack a ton of notes into a song, but he will find moments in songs to shove a bunch of notes in, then get back to the the rhythm. Uh, he's he's great at that. David Gilmour. David Gilmour actually him and slash for me come from a very similar place. They are hard bluesy players and you could stack up a lot of slash solos and I could see David Gilmour playing the same ones and vice versa. I I love them for the same reason. Slash is obviously a lot sleazier and a lot more hard rock, but they definitely got that that bluesy heaviness to them. And uh, yeah, uh, the thin ice is a great track, too. It's a great. It's a great follow-up to In the Flesh, and it, it se- sequences well into the next song. I mean, a lot of this album is almost like one long song on some some fronts. And I think the baby sample is uh, actually used very well.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So um, one of the the things that you guys have both touched on was um, I also enjoy how the uh, song starts with David Gilmore singing more in a gentle tone. I mean, if you put the two of them together, David Gilmour has what's what would be probably more considered a, a more pleasant singing voice, whereas Roger Waters, I mean, his voice sounds like it could crack ice. And I say that yeah. with compliments. Yeah, um, It's because of just that yin and yang that the two of them have. And um, that line of a million tear-stained tear eyes... And then if you should go skating on the thin ice of modern life, I think you were 100% accurate that it seems that any little misstep you could go just right through because that's how fragile keeping your sanity in modern life is really. And especially if you think about from the 1970s to what we are now with just the inundation of information at our fingertips, it is almost too much, right? And... This song kind of gives you a gut punch with those big, heavy guitar riffs, and you're absolutely right with the qu- king of the squibbly do. You know uh-huh. where I'm just going to go ahead and do. A, hey, how about I put a little salt on this? And um, David Gilmour is excellent at finding his space to uh, have his guitar speak for him, and it's just one of those things that just makes you uh, just you have to tip your cap you know you have to tip your cap to your um point
2: about the vocals i think pink floyd was they might be my favorite two lead singer band there's not a i mean i'm sure there's plenty of them but they're probably my favorite band that does that often and uh, let's see we got fleetwood mac we got fugazi who else? Who else had two primary
1: singers that sang together a lot? Two primary singers that sang a lot. The, the I mean, the Eagles always had like Don oh, Henley no, working Eagles, with yeah. Joe Walsh. Um, they're and,
2: definitely one of them.
1: Yeah. And Glenn Frey. Um But I mean, those are pretty much your famous people that had like multiple lead singers. I mean, maybe you could say Mark Lanigan and Josh from Queens sometimes but i mean that casey and jojo (laughs) absolutely
2: uh no i'm struggling i'm struggling with this i feel like there should be more but yeah not a lot jumped to mind but pink floyd sure did it well
1: yeah they did absolutely um but yeah good track too um in the film you see pink floating in his hotel room um it's kind of juxtaposition. Uh, it's all chopped up, essentially, is what I'm trying to say. Um, Because that first scene, you see him at the uh concert hall within the flesh, but this flashes back to him in his hotel room, floating in water. And he had already had cut himself, as we see later in the story, and the water turns into this kind of pool of blood as you go through the thin ice and things are really starting to Come crumbling down in the song but uh grid track two so let's go on to track three which is another brick in the wall part one let's hear a little bit of that one
0: the ocean just a memory shut
1: All right, so that was another Brick in the Wall Part 1. If you've heard Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, you obviously are hearing that similar melody. Uh, Just kind of from a narrative standpoint, we are now starting to see uh, the character Pink start to build his wall to separate from society. This one here uh, relates to how he felt after the following of his death of his father as a soldier in World War II. Um, This is also... Uh, similar to Roger Waters' story, his father also was killed in action, and uh, that's pretty much the background of this. But Steve, uh, tell me what you think of this this song.
2: I'm a big fan of. Uh, I think the the best days of our lives with the three bricks in the wall make a cool little mini story in the album. Talking about this first one in particular, I, I it's got a groove to it. It's the First appearance on this record of some of these disco leanings that Bob Ezrin said they should really go for. He really said, Go to a club and listen to disco. And just David Gilmore is the one that did, apparently. And he was like, uh, this music's terrible, but yeah, you can dance to it. And so that's why a few of these songs in this album are gonna move at a little bit more of a a brisk pace than you're used to with Pink Floyd. And it starts here. Um it's kind of just got that like chugging the chugging bass line and it, it's a, it's kind of, it's more atmospheric than a song. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of an aria. It's just more just like freestyle lyrics building to the next song. I really, the, the daddy, what'd you leave behind for me? Great, great delivery and vocal effect on that. You're starting to get your impression of the, the bricks being built with his abandonment issues of his dad dying when he was five months old, I believe uh, killed in the war. And there's some great guitar delay and movement on this track in the production. If you're listening to it with a good pair of headphones. You're going to hear things moving all around. It's a builder. It's a, it's it's a, it's building a wall. It's building audibly to the songs that follow it. I think it is a good,
3: good snapshot of what's coming next.
1: Absolutely. Eric, what do you, what do you think about, uh, part one of another brick in the wall?
3: Yeah, it's cool. I mean, lyrically you guys got it, you know, right down. It's thinking about, you know, dad leaving and just leaving nothing but a snapshot as he goes overseas never to return. I did think about my own father a little bit listening to this. He's never said as much. My dad is just oppressively optimistic all the time and, and positive, but his dad died in the Korean war when he was two years old. And, uh, um, yeah you know, I always just wonder you know cuz he's a he's a kind of a quiet Pink Floyd fan. I want I always wonder if this song rang True so I've got something to talk about at our next dinner. Um but yeah this this song uh what I like about it is it's it's the you know your your brick motif is set down here with the the you know da 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 you know I'm not singing right but you know the the another brick in the wall uh riff and uh apparently in my research almost every song on this album even if it doesn't sound like it they are using notes and key signatures from this motif um, they keep the palette very defined throughout this entire album and obviously the riff will come back even in songs that aren't another brick part twos or threes um, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I appreciate so yeah while this is more atmospheric they're getting those seeds in of the uh, the musical palette. And uh, they're they're establishing that in this track, so good stuff.
2: You know, I don't I don't know the rules of the rules of musical theater, but I do know that at the difference between a rock album and going to the theater is that you're uh, you're usually going to have reoccurring songs or reoccurring uh, rhythms that tie the storyline together. So that's what they were doing here. And they do it well. Knock, 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 and knock,
3: knock, 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 knock more. Yeah.
2: Yes. And uh, yeah, to your, to your point about the, the daddy, what'd you leave behind for me? Roger Waters has not hid his issues with his daddy issues. And he, he said, you know, he, 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 I was watching this interview about how his, uh, his son, his son who's actually on this record, we'll get to that. But his son as an adult plays with him live. And they have a great relationship and he just, you know, yeah, he wonders, he thinks that his dad dying just really was one of the reasons why he built his wall and why he was married four times. And he traces so much of it back to that. And I don't think you could say that's a cop out. I don't, you know, I, my, my dad and I have our issues, but he existed in my life. Even if sometimes I wish he didn't and other times I didn't mind but also I had a a strong stepfather figure. And so, you know, I can't imagine having the absence of any kind of father figure your entire life. Like when you're five months old, you do not know anything. My two month old does not know who I am right now. He just likes me because I hold him and I make funny voices to him. So I definitely think it could, uh, it could definitely leave a mark or a lack of a mark on you.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, I. you guys obviously know that the relationship that I have with my dad is extremely strained. I mean, I haven't spoken to the man in probably close to three or four years now. And, you know, I, whenever I do listen to Pink Floyd, it is a commonality that I do share with the guy. Um, our love of music and films generally are pretty similar to a certain extent. Um, but. That's kind of where our railroad tracks really start to diverge. And um, it is one of those things that uh, going back, I myself probably, especially when I had my own son, I knew that I didn't want to repeat the same mistakes and put all these expectations on my kids kind of the same way that my dad put my expect his expectations onto me and my sister. So this particular song, it does kind of hit me in that kind of sense. Like I wish that I potentially had a close relationship with my dad, but we are just two polar opposite personalities that it would almost be this toxic sludge that would be produced whenever we get together. So got to cut that out. Can I ask you something?
2: Yeah. Can I ask you something? Sure. And I've thought about this with my dad is that, uh, yes, I have main differences with him. And I've actually been thinking about calling him and having a heart to heart about (laughs) if you vote for this fascist, I don't know if we can talk anymore. But um, going back to when you're a little kid and you don't know any better, I think that still my dad was like my first friend, as weird as that sounds. He showed me some art. You know, he did teach me how to ride a bike, uh, how to hit a baseball, and I t- to not have any of that. Even though we grew apart, I think I would be I'd be lacking. So, do you very? You know, this is a you know I'm, I'm Freud. Do you still think though that you're better off having your dad in your life at all when you were a kid than not at all?
1: Interestingly enough, um, so the things, the experiences that you had with your dad are not the same experiences that I had with mine. He was always sort of kind of emotionally distant. And so some of those stuff that was shared with me at that age was through my mom. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, playing catch with me, encouraged me to play baseball, encouraging me to um, potentially try to learn an instrument. Um, so all of that really came down from my mom. But more of the pop cultural stuff did come down from my dad, but he was more kind of like the cool kid in class that didn't really want someone kind of cramping his style. That's kind of always how the impression that I got from Mm -hmm. him—that he wanted to be the coolest in the room—and having a kid wasn't considered cool. So it was kind of that relationship, and I never like felt that I had to impress him or prove to him. I just was like okay, you know, I just, we're, we're completely just different and I accepted that at a young age and I knew that I was more comfortable being who I was around my mom. And, um, you know, it's interesting that this particular record really does bring up upbringing quite a lot. You know, the dad was gone and mother was overprotective and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But it is one of those things that, you know, as you're listening to this record, you are starting to relate to it in some way or another. And that just really shows of how timeless this album is. I can see
2: your mother being that person. She's a hell of a lady.
1: Right. I mean, she was the one that was taking me to baseball games. She was the one that was um, doing activities like miniature golfing and uh, riding bikes with us. My dad was more in his own world and wasn't really connected. And the one thing that, you know, to this day that I still have hangups is that my dad was always obsessed with status. What's his status? What's the family status? And if you're not living up to a high level of expectations, you are a disappointment.
2: I can't imagine. That's exhausting.
1: So it has always been that way. And I just knew when I developed my own personality and my own identity, I just realized that's not for me. And it's fine. I don't wish this person any harm. It's just one of those situations where you just have to know, like Kenny Rogers said, you have to know when to fold them. And I just, I did. And uh, that was it.
2: But we can thank your mother for you not joining the Young Republicans Club. So thank you very much, ma'am.
1: Exactly. Um,
2: uh, Eric, your, your parents aren't divorced, so you don't get to join in on this conversation.
3: I'm just enjoying learning more about my friends. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so as we walked through memory lane just there, I think it's time we listen to the next track, which is appropriately titled The Happiest Days of Our Lives. So that was happiest days of our lives. Um, this is obviously a really good intro. Um if any DJ worth their salt is gonna play this track before they go into the next track. Um so it's kind of an introduction to another brick in the wall part two. Really kind of outlines school days where teachers were bullying the children. Um but Eric, what what do you think about this being an educator yourself?
3: Yeah. Uh well,
2: all right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get I'm gonna get to talk in ten minutes. Thank you.
3: uh so one thing i like is um it starts with the army choppers and then it fades into the teacher's voice screaming at the kids and i did text you guys i was like is that scottish comedian billy Connolly? it sounds just like him and uh um you know uh, otherwise known as billy bones from the uh from muppets treasure island but he was a famous comedian it's not it's not, but, um, anyways, uh, this song, uh, is pretty cool. Um, it stays right in the key of another brick and it serves a purpose for that. Um, essentially the, the two bricks and this are a medley. They go right together. Um, so much. So when this song ended, I was like, that's it. I'm feeling this song and it's over. And then as soon as, uh, the, uh another brick part two started, I was like, Oh, okay, genius. Um, yeah, I mean, this song is about some uh, really, you know, fucked up school experience. Uh, we grew up, we went to school. There are certain teachers that would hurt the children, um, and it, and a lot of it's like uh, emotional abuse, uh, sarcasm, and and putting the kids down, and 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 yelling at them, to absolutely abusive. And then they would go home to their uh, fat uh, psychopathic wives that would trash them is, is, is a lyric that he says, um, where they're basically taking out their own sadness on these kids. And, um, definitely, uh, a, I, the, this song and the next song, I, I was fascinated with yes, as an educator. And, um, you know, I'm speaking from a, a position of somebody that is in a California public school district And was a teacher in special education where you take everybody and it's all about building on strengths. And now I'm an administrator in that where I'm supporting teachers to become more inclusive. So I'm seeing a lot of positive, uh, progressive teaching practices. Um, But it doesn't surprise me to hear this was the experience of, of, of Mr. Waters, um, you know, I, I think this the school system, especially back then, was a lot more like um, private institution style schools, um, boarding schools and stuff like that. Um, you know, no checks and balances for those teachers <laughs> there's real psychos <laughs> teaching those classes, um, you know, apples to oranges. But I, I, I do think it's, it's, it's very interesting being somebody that came about in this post no child left behind teaching world where it's all about building on strengths and positivity and um it's just so sad to hear this and and obviously the school experience was as as painful for him as his dad dying in the war i mean this was one of the huge bricks in his wall so um i i do find these songs fascinating and um and very sad and and anyways one thing i i did write about the song is uh when he sings this is the first time i'm like oh shit primus uh, he's got a Les Claypool. I mean, obviously, I should rephrase that. Les Claypool does a Roger Rogers thing a lot, especially in Mrs. Blayling. And I, I definitely oh, yeah. felt some real connections to his vocal delivery in that with uh, this song um, and the way he kind of yells. And uh, I love Waters' vocal. He has voices on this album. Obviously in the trial, that's a different story entirely. But he's like a vocal artist on this album. He's he's changing it to fit the mood or the or his age Pink's age for the song or the era he's in. And uh, this one's a ride and it leads into the next song perfectly. And it really paints a picture of what he was going through, which is, which is not what education should be. So.
2: Eric, I have, um, yeah, uh, I I think that you have a lot of great points there. When I was younger, I didn't have anybody as bad as in this song, but I definitely had some teachers that uh, I actually, believe it or not, there were times where I, it wasn't the smartest kid in the God. No, but I, I I had more than one occasion where, uh, I would like get done with a book suit too fast for a teacher's liking. And they would try to quiz me on, on the book in front of everybody. Okay. This only happened once, but versions of this, Mr. Burns sixth grade. I, I read a book really quick. And he said, you couldn't have read that that fast. And he said, what about the horses? And I told him all about the horses. And he looked at me and he just said, you can go wait in the hallway for the rest of the day. And wow, like, yeah. And, and you know, I, I showed the old man up and I wasn't even trying to, I, I'd like to hope that those types of teachers are no longer in our school system for the most part. Um, you know, the, the, the guys that are, they looked at it as just a job. They didn't care what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you can speak to it much better than we can, but I definitely, in the olden days, I'm sure this was more likely to happen, which is a, authoritarianism. And the schoolroom was there to shape a young mind, but not to teach a young mind right. more. So.
3: And, I, and I, um, I think this also goes back to the public school versus private school debate. Cause public school, you have to kind of like take everybody, which means like, you better be more flexible and more open as a teacher, or you're going to drive yourself absolutely insane. And the obviously Roger water story is, is a, is a private institution. Um, but anyways, um, yeah, I I'd like to say things are changing, but then again, I mean, I love the union, but the union also makes it impossible for anybody to get fired. So, uh, there are probably some old codgers that are still kicking kids out of class for, for, uh, uh, (laughs) being smarter than them.
2: (laughs) Uh, Eric, I do. One thing I did think about though, is that a lot of people with them right now, looking at how people are taught obviously because everyone's learning from home for the most part is I do think there is something to be said that the school system was put in place to, in addition to teaching kids also help parents have a full day of work, which I understand. And also just kind of babysit because in my experience so far, anecdotally from friends that have kids in all different levels and just my child that's in TK, is that you really only need to teach for like three hours of the day. And then the rest of it's just, uh, keeping an eye on kids. What do you think?
3: I would argue that's okay. First of all, a teacher would, would laugh at you because they have this curriculum and they well, have, I'm
2: not them. a teacher, Eric.
3: <laughs> no, they'd have, they'd have to hit these standards over the year. So they'd say, I can't, I, even I, was I
2: was used to Mr. Burns laughing at me. And now Eric Anderson is well, that's
3: right. That's right. <laughs> but, uh, but I would also say that like, yeah, Maybe if you only condensed direct instruction and like lectures, say, to three hours a day, sure, out of their six-hour day at school. But if you're not giving the kids practical hands-on, uh, like collaborative group work to apply those skills, then you're not teaching and they're not going to be able to ever use those skills. And that is half the day and it should be half the day. So there you go.
2: Good point. And you see what I just did there is I am a great friend because I know that Eric's having to tell certain parents this stuff that are just wondering why on earth can't I just give my kids back to you and he got to use our podcast to let everybody know how it is so that that was Eric's version of Info Wars thank you very much this song it's a good song it's uh the bass line that do 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 you can't beat it it's uh, it's groovy when the uh when the drums kick in, Mason and Waters really lock into each other. They're just, they're killers on this track. And then when it has the rising action with uh, all of the conga drums, whatever the hell it is, I think there's conga drums on this song. It's, I throw my hands in the air every time for the, 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 the conclusion of this track, the rising action, it's fantastic. And it leads right into the second part of it which we've all heard a billion times, but not after you get to have that awesome Roger Waters scream of which there are a few Roger water screams on this, this album. They're like the Wilhelm scream. They're great.
3: Was I alone in my primus connection on this song? No, I feel like, no, you're not.
2: Like- and I wanted to fu- you know what? I meant to bring primus up earlier. That was one of the reasons that when, uh, I got into primus, I kind of got into primus combination of Mark's influence. And then they were just becoming popular at the time, about as popular as Primus is going to be, is that they're, they, Les Claypool is an unabashed Pink Floyd fan. They covered their songs. He later covered whole albums of theirs. And yes, Les Claypool's not a... He's a nasally singer, but he knew how to use his voice properly and he loved to do voices. And also, yes, Mrs. Blay- Blay- Blaylene was basically the same t- uh, subject matter. But Primus being Pink Floyd fans made me like Primus more than I already did.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad that you brought up Primus because um, what is very present on this song is that bass line. I mean, it it basically is playing the role of the lead guitar riff. Do 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 do. Do. I love that. I love that so much. It's solid stuff, and then you've got the drums. Essentially, you know going in Phil full Phil Collins mode where I just picture Nick Mason. Just, he's got this huge, like the drum fills he's hitting every Tom that's available there. And then you've got the helicopter sound. Um, it's just, it's a really cool intro that just gets you amplified. And then with the, uh, Roger Waters, uh, careful with that ax Eugene scream. Uh, look it up kids. If you're not familiar with pink Floyd, great song. Um, then it goes right into abruptly that we don't need no education. And I think we should listen to Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 right now. We don't need no education
0: We don't need no thought control
1: So that was another brick in the wall part two, very continuation about why he was isolating himself from society, uh, dealing with the traumas that he felt at school um, from those who were uh, deemed in a positional authority, people that we should be looking up to, are educators, our teachers, who are essentially taking out their home life onto innocent children. And how that trauma, how that feeling of insecurity it can bubble into your adult Life In the film uh, You see the teacher actually taking His little black book of poems And reading the lyrics to the song Money uh, Money is obviously on Dark Side of the Moon If you haven't been listening to the radio Since 1974 um, But uh, Another brick in the wall part two Massive hit Big single, you got a children's choir Eric Tell me a little bit more about how this hits you when children are saying, we don't need no education.
3: I I actually love it. Um, I spent the last song, you know, essentially defending teachers because I've just brought up, I have to do that from nine to five anyways (laughs) as my job. So, but I, you know, like you said, if you trust and you are supposed to look up to these people and they're abusive, it's the saddest thing in the world. And I think there is a rebellious spirit to the song that I love and hearing those kids sing that chorus. Uh, I love it. It reminds me of a punk band. Sham 69 had a song. If the kids are united, they will never be divided. It's kids singing that in the chorus all together. And it's a very same kind of just fist in the air rebellious spirit. And in this school, in this scenario that they're describing in this abuse, it's, it's wonderful. Even if it didn't happen in reality, it happened in, in pink's head as a way to fight back and uh yeah and I think it's a beautiful beautiful moment and bringing back the brick motif of the riff and and this is the most fully realized version of the another brick trilogy um and it shreds it's it's great it's a huge single like you said you hear it on uh the eagle any other day of the week and it's for a good reason it's it's a it's a banger
2: Steve I think this might be the most popular song we've ever talked about that. It, it, I really think it's uh, one of the biggest rock songs of all time overshadows anything I think Bowie and definitely Nine Channels have ever done. So there you go. We've, I, I probably knew the words of this song when I was like three years old. Uh, <laughs> great track. Catchy as all hell. Uh, that disco beat that guitar riff, it's taking it back to David Bowie. Uh, Nile Rogers, this is a Nile Rogers guitar riff if I ever heard one. I cannot <laughs> yeah. deny that grooving guitar work. And in Roger or David Gilmore is just having having fun with it. And i you know, I just pretty impressive that they were able to make something so catchy on an album that's so heavy. But they still wanted to get some singles out there, and they definitely did. Uh, we've heard the song a billion times. Sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. But for the majority of this record, no, that doesn't happen to me. I never get tired of hearing this song. Uh, I I love the kids, uh, the kids' choir. I think it's inspired. Uh, Mark, if you want to go into a little bit of that history, when you take over, you can. If you don't, I'll bring it up. And uh, that guitar solo, thank you very much. Another David Gilmour chef's kiss. I can't believe... I don't know, like, I... I... I he has to, he can't be that improvisational with his guitar solos. His guitar solos always fit the song so well that I, I really think that guy just put some effort into his craft. I just rarely impressed every time he takes center stage on so many Pink Floyd songs. Uh, yeah, it's just, uh, this is another, this is another one where Bob, uh, uh, uh David, I uh, cannot talk tonight. Sorry. Ezrin uh, told David Gilmore go to a couple of clubs and listen to what's happening with disco music, and he did that. And he hated the music, but he knew how to take it and make it his own. You can't can't beat it, man. It's a, it's an anthem. It's it's anti-authoritarian. It's revolutionary. I like to think that kids that have no idea what it's about still take something from it when they're little. It's a great song. I dig it.
1: It is a great song. Um, I I will go a little bit of the history. Um, So Bob Ezrin, he heard that disco beat and said, we got a hit on our hands folks, um, but it needs to be a little bit longer uh, with two verses and two choruses. And you absolutely see the repetition, but instead of them just re singing that same lyric, he said, wouldn't it be interesting if we got a, Children's Choir to come in and sing That The verses So they approach um, The Islington Islington Green School It was close to the Pink Floyd studio And he had engineer Nick Griffiths Record the uh, kids singing the verse Apparently it was inspired by a Todd Rundgren album Featuring an audience in each stereo channel He suggested having the entire school choir do it. And they were only given 40 minutes for the entire recording session. Um, So the head of the music uh, at the school was enthusiastic, said, let's do it. But the teacher, the head teacher, apparently, um, they wanted to make sure that she wasn't going to have her feathers ruffled. So they hid those lyrics from her, thinking that the teacher is going to put the kibosh on this and essentially shut this down because we don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. The kids loved it. They had a good time. Uh, Apparently um, in exchange for them performing the vocals, uh, the kids received tickets to a Pink Floyd concert, which, okay, I'm sure they enjoyed it, you know, smelling marijuana smoke. And I'm sure their parents were happy about that. Uh, The school got a payment of a 1,000 pounds. There was no contractual arrangement for royalties, so the kids were just like, you know, all that money essentially that was paid to the school. Uh, But then there was a change to copyright law in 1996, and then they became eligible to actually get royalties from the broadcast. Um, And eventually the kids actually did get some money. So um, there you go. The one thing I will say about this song so extremely catchy. I love Dave Gilmore's guitar performance. Um, the uh, how it's all put together. It's extremely just. It's toe tapping, catchy. It's great. But the one thing I will say about this song is I don't feel that it's ever executed very well live. Um, I think that children's choir brings another element to it that brings its its charm. Um, but whenever I've seen it, whether it's like a Dave Gilmore, um, whether it's on the delicate sound of thunder or pulse guy, I'm expecting a little bit more. And even on the live album, um, is there anybody out there? I feel like it's lacking. Um, it's a great song, but I feel like you find its strength through the studio version. Eric, did you, do you agree with me on this one?
0: I
3: do. I haven't heard as much as you guys for the live stuff, but, um, it's a noticeable different. Like I said that the kids singing gives it a, like a, a spirit of rebellion, which uh, is, you just can't match.
1: Right. Right. But Steve, it sounds like you disagree with me a little bit there.
2: I don't know if I disagree with you. I was actually going to ask you, but, but uh, how, how was it on that late eighties, early nineties, Roger Waters uh, and friends <laughs> version of the wall with Brian Adams and uh cindy lopper was, it, was that? oh version? man
1: i know so yeah 1990 roger waters decided to get like a all-star cast together during the fall of the berlin wall and uh that album is kind of a mess i can't remember who essentially is on this track but brian adams i think appears on a later track but yeah cindy lopper uh it's it's a freaking mess uh if you really are looking for further studies and you just really want to capture how it sounds on different live recordings. I mean, I think Roger Waters has done now with lot, the wall live where you can see it recording like maybe three times. So yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. He's defined his career by this album and we'll probably talk about it in closing. Right. I think he's earned it, but also I think he's perfected it live better from what I've seen. Than what he started out with back in the, that, that that Roger Waters and Friends show, so, right? Yeah. Um, now hold on. Uh, yeah, did everyone listen to the corn version?
1: <laughs> I know it exists. I think it's on their greatest hits. I've heard it before on uh, when I did my corn run through, and um, I wasn't offended by it. But it's, I'm. There's so many covers of this fucking song.
2: Yeah, there's there's a lot of covers of, of this song. There's a lot of covers of this album. Um, I'm only going to bring up a few tonight, but their version is not that great. It was from the movie originally, The Faculty. You remember that one? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's
3: a, great, that's a Robert Rodriguez movie. It's actually uh, not bad. Pretty good movie. I will say that. Pretty good movie. <laughs>
1: Um, but yeah, I think I've heard that it was one of the worst covers of a classic rock song of all time. I think is what someone characterized it as.
2: It's a bold, it's a bold statement because there's a lot of bad covers. Oh out yeah, there. I'm sure
1: Disturbed's version of "Sound of Silence" is on that list too.
2: <laughs> that was my I, stepfather's <laughs> ringtone for a while.
3: It's a perfect song. Uh, uh, T1000 plays a football coach, and uh, he's like, he's an alien, and he starts infecting the other kids on the at the school to become aliens. It's a good movie. It's a great movie. I'll get off the movie. I'm sorry, guys. (laughs)
1: Uh, But there you go. (laughs) But there you go. Um, All right. So let's go ahead and take a breath and uh, listen to our next track, which is a song Moms Everywhere Love. It's called Mother and not the Danzig version, the Pink Floyd one.
0: Your nightmares come true Mama's gonna put all of her fears into you Mama's gonna keep you right here under her wing She won't let you fly, but she might let you sing Mama's gonna keep baby cozy and warm
1: So that was Mother Um, Just to give you a little background here You can certainly see it's a conversation Between Pink and his mother Whether it's real or fake But it's something that's going on in his head Um, I like the interplay that you have With Pink being played by Roger Waters And his mother being voiced by David Gilmour And uh, certainly about the overprotective And isolation against society That she was created Around uh, her son, Pink. So, um, Steve, tell me about Mother.
2: Yeah, this is a good song. I've gone back and forth over the years about how good of a song it is. Uh, I do the the, the sound of uh, does the last track end with also a, like a ringtone? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, that ringtone and then into that that breath. I like it's really more theater of the mind there. It's a very pretty song for the most part. I think it's actually one of a, you know, pink Floyd, you, you wish you were here. You can kind of put mother behind it with like that type of song. I think they, they go well together, even though wish you were here is very much more earnest and not cynical and depressing. Like mother is, uh, you don't have it. Richard, Richard Wright and Nick Mason are not on this track. They're on the majority of the tracks of this album, but sometimes they get left off altogether. um, The keys and the drums are played by uh, Bob Ezrin and somebody with the last name Procaro, which uh, I on my notes didn't put his first name, but I thought that was interesting to note. Uh, I've always that line, (laughs) a little juvenile of me, but mother will they break my balls? I've always know it's always stuck. Me too. It's the line, and also the, the delivery is very interesting. Um, I the the again back to. Roger Waters' delivery of his lyrics, making it very, you know, this album's very personal to him, and I think only he could really sing this album. The
0: mother, will they put me in the firing line?
2: Is another, just, nobody else could sing that line like he does. Uh, that, that section where David Gilmore comes in with the hush now, baby, baby, don't you cry, and how it, it leads into the guitar solo is pretty damn great. Uh, the, the song gets fuller, with its production as it goes on, it has really good rock production. It gets very big. And I think that, uh, that guitar solo is awesome and you can't beat it. And a couple of other lines on it that stick out to me is, uh, she won't let you fly, but she might let you sing, which kind of, you know, she'll, you know, don't, uh, mother's not going to totally snuff you out, but don't get, don't get too crazy and trying to be ambitious. I think it's a, a great line. This is a good version of an Eagles song. I think the Eagles feel like they're writing this song all the time, but they're the Eagles. This is uh,
1: the kind of hits that hits the target. I know what I think the Eagles are always trying to hit. I could see that, um, Eric. Uh, I'm very fascinated to what you have to say about Mother.
3: Yeah, um, on the surface, it is kind of a standard '70s song. It's got um, you know a uh, plucking acoustic guitar riff. Um, with some kind of swooping background sounds. Um, I actually love the lyrics to this. This song could stand on its own as just a song about, well, what it's about, which is, you know, just somebody who's been kind of sheltered by an overprotective mother. The songs are, the lyrics are heartbreaking, you know, like, mother, do you think they'll drop the bomb? I, I love how he sings that. But then do you think they'll like the song? Like he's asking for permission kind of for everything and then should i build the wall like mother taught him how to build his wall and it's almost like after dad died being sad and uh going through grief was maybe not socially acceptable so mom had to build her own wall and um kind of showed him how to do that and uh and that's where it started and i and i think this is one of the the most expressive songs on here. I don't know if it's autobiographical, but the emotions are are real and um I I, I actually uh I like the song, you know, just, just I think if you took it out of the album would I pay a second glance to it? I I don't know. The melody is undeniable. Um not necessarily in my wheelhouse, but um when I'm listening to it in this album, I get caught up in it and I really do like it.
2: One thing I meant to mention is that uh on that covers album called the wall redux, which is by it's on magnetic eye records. And I think anybody that enjoys this album should listen to the whole thing. Every song is by a different artist. You've got the Melvins, the low flying Hawks, Scott reader from Caius, Mark Lanigan, uh, Paul bear, Ruby, the hatchet. There's some familiar bands on there. There's some that I've never even heard of. Anyhow, the version of Mother on there by a band called a- a- ASG, it's okay, but the they kick it up a notch for the guitar solo section, and I think it's it's got some like awesome harmonized metal guitars. Um, anybody that likes sludgy metal and likes Pink Floyd uh, should seek that album out. But definitely the cover of Mother is uh, worth checking out.
1: Good recommendation. Um, that's that's good. And the reason I wanted to kind of get some fresh perspective is on on this one is because this particular song, uh, to Steve's point, has I'm always kind of uh, ebbing and flowing between. Do I like this song? Do I not like this song? It really does get going once Dave Gilmore kind of enters the scene, um, when you know it starts out with that acoustic guitar. It sounds like. I don't want to say generic 70s rock song, but it's not something that necessarily sticks to my ribs immediately. Well, I, that's
2: why I brought up the Eagles.
1: Exactly. And I feel like you are spot on on that because it is one of those kind of slow burns that really gets going once. Um, Hush, no, baby, baby, don't you cry. And then it you get the Dave Gilmore, like guitar and you get a little bit more melody and it starts to get a little bit more layered rather than some singer songwriter bullshit that I'm just you know when I first heard this song I was like wow okay low point on the record let's go ahead and just get to the next one Um, but over time this song has grown on me um, considerably Um, as it goes to the narrative I mean It's interesting that his father dying um, is a brick in the wall of him isolating himself from society, but his mother's overprotection, not necessarily as a brick in the wall, um, maybe not, I guess, explicitly, but just the fact that he's saying, kind of discuss, I guess, giving the audience, giving the listener a little bit more insight about how his whole personality has developed. He had this overprotective mother that um, even when he wanted to take risks, she was over basically saying, nope, nope, don't do that. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. Or, hey, that, that woman over there could offer me some companionship and some physical feeling of me being like acceptable to who I am. And he's like, no, she, she's just going to hurt you. Or she's going to break your heart. And just having that filter of having almost permission From the only authority figure in his life, in order to feel happy and complete, Um, it does resonate. I mean, I don't have an overprotective mother, but it does resonate with that whole idea of how he's essentially established himself around women and who he is in terms of how confident he can be and just that internal struggle of feeling like he's got a place in the world. Without having to ask permission of uh, feeling the way that he feels, I
3: think it adds a uh, a layer of character to Pink that adds weight to the overall album. And I think without it, it would be a lighter it would be a lighter meal, in my opinion.
1: But yeah, that's Mother. Um, It is a very challenging song. Um, I feel if you're not into further studies with Pink Floyd, you may just outright feel that it needs to cut to the chase a little faster. So um, I I kind of agree with that. And um, that's Mother. So let's go ahead and look out our windows and see, as Steve put it, if we can say hello or goodbye, blue sky. Thank mm-hmm. you. So that was a little bit of Goodbye Blue Sky. Uh, This, if you follow the film, flashes back to the whole blitzkrieg of London um, as civilians were essentially bombarded with Nazi bombs falling out of the sky. And it could uh, essentially be um, characterized as a loss of innocence, knowing that the world is a harsh and cruel place. But I would be interested to know uh, what, what you think of this song, Steve?
2: Yeah, I like this song. As a kid, it always seemed very strange to me. I am. Um, it's interesting. I have very vivid memories as a kid also of just leaning on the lawn. If I'm a very small house that we grew up in and looking at the blue sky and thinking of this song and thinking of that opening lyric that, look, mommy, that, what's he say? There's a plane. In the yeah, sky, there's an airplane up
1: is in the sky.
2: Yeah, and that's Harry Waters, that's Roger Waters' son. Um, uh, the, I just, I, I don't know if there's a little bit of a, my mind playing tricks in me, but I remember listening to this song as a kid looking at the blue sky. And to your point, Mark, a few weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, uh, in Hell World, some days now, when the sky is blue, I have to appreciate it. And I honestly said to myself, maybe even loud, loud well, at least the sky is blue today. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, that's where
3: we've gotten, huh? That's that's how things
2: are going.
1: Yeah, I know. <laughs> the sky doesn't look on fire today.
3: Um, that's why people come to California yeah. for the blue skies. It's, it's, it, it's, a,
2: it's a cool song because it starts out as one thing, but it definitely, like, there's a sense of menace to it. Uh, David Gilmore, Roger Waters, and Richard Wright all play synthesizers on it at different points. There's some nice guitar strumming that's like metal era Pink Floyd. But beneath it, there's a since really cool juxtaposition of old and old Floyd and whatever Floyd was doing on this record. The had to run for shelter when the promise of a brave new world unfurled beneath the clear blue sky is such a mouthful, but they managed to sing it. But it's just like, I do not know what they were like. I don't know if they were on a clock that day at the studio or what, but uh, it always sticks out to me by how how just he trips over himself to get that out, and yeah, it's a it's a it's a bridge song. I think it's more there for the storyline, and it's but it's not bad. Eric,
3: yeah, I I uh, this maybe not would not be you know a go to wall song. It's um, it is a transition song. Um, it's kind of going from his kind of repressed. Uh, life. um, Remembering flashing back to the war, the war and getting ready to move away from mummy. Um, But I love the synth work on this song. I think it's, it's, it's pretty, I like at the time it was probably pretty, very cutting edge. Um, Having listened to all the cool Berlin stuff from Bowie, I think, um, you know, they probably were exchanging some records. There's a, there's some good stuff going on there. I like how the, there's a bird tweeting, at the beginning that's like it's like a synthesized bird you can tell and it just kind of does a natural thing and then it becomes nightmarish <laughs> as it goes on i really like um the effect of of what they're doing with synthesizers on the song it's 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 cool and it 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 kind of the uh the world's uh the 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 uh the strain of infection is is now spreading and um yeah it's it's a cool transition and uh you know it's it, it it if this is a story album and this is one of those songs that just kind of gets you from point A to point B they're doing some really cool stuff with the music and I love the the did you see the frightened ones I just like that uh describing people as the frightened ones is uh is something I don't know it just gets stuck in my head
1: yeah. I'm, I like how gentle that the album or this song starts with the kind of guitar plucking on in the acoustic. And then um, it really does lend itself to that foreboding kind of ominous dread um, that uh, comes into play. Um, it is a good interlude song just by the fact that it's not like something that you would want to necessarily listen to on shuffle This album has a lot of those types of songs where um, you really have to listen to this album as a whole piece. If you get like little snippets, if it's just happened to be on a shuffle as you're cleaning the house or organizing spreadsheets at your work, um, it's not necessarily going to be um, giving you the same emotional impact that you would by just listening to the album straight through. I do like this song just based on how gentle and ominous it sounds at the same time. It's of two minds going on. So we can continue on to the next track, which would be uh, Empty Spaces.
0: To fill the empty spaces, we used to talk. How shall I fill the final places?
1: I... So that was empty spaces. Um, we've got, we found ourselves that Pink is, uh, in a marriage that is really char- characterized by physical and emotional distance. Um, he's coming closer to just shutting himself completely out by filling those cracks in the wall. How should he fill those empty spaces? Not only how he feels mentally and emotionally, but also now with who he considers his, uh, significant other and partner. Um, Eric, tell me, tell me what you think of empty spaces.
3: I like the song a lot. Um, this song, I think if you listen to the background sounds, it, 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 I feel like, uh, I I'm getting some of the same warm fuzzies that I got from listening to the idiot, um, with just some really cool proto, um, electronic work happening in the background. Um, lyrically, I think it's important, you know, he's talking, this is like the negative space, the, the rest of it, he's talking about building the bricks, but what happens in the, in the spaces? And we fill those things, um, you know, with, with other things. And, and sometimes it's, 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 uh, experiences. Sometimes it's people, um, sometimes it's affairs and, uh, and that's, and we, as we find out, that's what pink is doing as he kind of grows up and becomes this this rock star, he gets away, but he has these empty spaces and he does not fill those with positive experiences, but you know, more, more things that, that affect him negatively. And um, I think it's a, I think it's a very cool song. And this one also has that weird uh, backwards masked phone call. There's this backwards talk. And apparently if you play it forward, it, you hear hello, looker, congratulations. You've just discovered the secret message please send your answer to old pink care of funny farm. Roger Carolyn's on the phone. Okay. And that's, that's what you hear if you play it forward, <laughs> um, which, you know, is funny kind of plays a part in the story, but is more just kind of there for fans. It's uh yeah. Uh, this is a, this is a very, I, one of, this is one of the most, uh, sonically, sonically interesting songs. Um, Separated from what the band usually, I guess, sounds like. I, I enjoy it.
1: Yeah, um Stephen, what do you got?
2: Yeah, no, I think that this song is great because it definitely—it's menacing, it's dread, it's dread, dread sense, if you will. And for Pink Floyd, I even think it's a new territory, as far as it's very synthetic. They've always had aspects of technology in their tracks, but this sounds like a. A, a proto-industrial type thing to me, and uh, this is one of the few songs on here where I think of the movie almost every time I listen to it, and that's because this is Mark on the movie. Isn't Empty Spaces also mixed with uh, another song? What God, shall I mean, we do now? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. They they go together. Correct? You're absolutely
1: right. right. In fact. Yeah, Yeah. and so
2: in the movie, I mean, yeah, the song is about kind of like, what do we, you know, we've married for a while, but we don't talk anymore. Uh, You know, you know what, how are we going to fill these spots? I know I'll fill them with bricks of the wall and they will become, you know, this, this miscommunication, this lack of communication with my wife will become more bricks in my wall. There's like a double wordplay there going on. What are we going to do with these spaces? These spaces are going to form these bricks. That'll then fill these spaces, and in the movie, it has a, these two flowers that grow, and they're very phallic. And uh oh, I'm gonna get called a, a misogynist now. What is the word for phallic but vagina? I think it is
1: just vaginal. <laughs>
2: <No>. <laughs> okay, Jesus Christ! Yes, phallic and vaginal, and they they dart at each other, and it's got all these Freudian things going on, and then uh the the whole thing kind of turns into a wall growing and filling the empty spaces. It's, it's really cool visually. I think it's a, uh, I don't want to spend the whole podcast tonight, referring everyone to the movie. And I think we've done a good job of not doing that, but for this song, I think it really lends itself. If you go look at the, uh,
3: the way they did this in the movie, it's it, it, I think you'll, you'll be happy. You did. It's Georgia O'Keeffe on amphetamines. Yes. That, that sequence. It it's fucking is. insane. Yeah.
2: Um, you know, Roger Waters claims this wasn't about his wife at the time because they were doing okay, but I think he really does get across that point of two people that have been together a while and they have nothing; they don't know how to relate to each other anymore. What are you gonna What are you gonna do when you you've hitched your wagon to somebody and you guys are in going in separate directions? I think it paints that picture pretty well, and uh, you know, I uh, I sometimes think about that. You know, I. I love my wife very much. Uh, I will be with her until I die. Knocking wood. There are days when we do have fights and I do sometimes like, Oh, what the fuck would I do if her and I couldn't communicate anymore? And I make it a point every time we do have a communication breakdown. I try to eat crow when I need to. Like I try to make sure we talk again. Cause I cannot imagine a total communication breakdown with somebody that you've based your whole finances, your two kids, happiness, all that around each other this song paints a picture of what it would be like if that breakdown starts to happen really well. It's, it sounds dark. It sounds dreadful. And one thing it does do on this song that a lot of tracks on this album do, you close your eyes and listen to a lot of these songs. It gives you this feeling of maybe being in like a totally dark isolated place sonically. This is one of the better tracks that does that for me.
3: Yeah, and maybe and maybe the problem is that Pink used this wife to fill an empty space instead of it being a genuine relationship, you know?
1: Yeah, no, that's actually a really good point. Um, and uh, just a few things. I, I agree with everything you said. It does just the visuals that you get uh, from Gerald Scarf's animation from the movie. Um, it just stays with you. Um, it is just, I don't want to say iconic, but it when you're listening to this song, you can't help but think of those flowers fucking. It just, it is what it is. Um, One of the so- the things that like really does capture about this song is the fact that um, they had to make a choice. Um, they did record a song that was featured in the film called What Shall We Do Now? Um, in When they went to master the uh, vinyl, it just found that it was too long for that to be included. So they shortened it down and they created... Uh, Empty Spaces out of that. In the film, it goes, just what shall we do now with the introduction being the same, what you would find in Empty Spaces, Uh, what you have on the album, right after Empty Spaces, it goes right into the next song, which is Young Lust. I feel that it's a big travesty that What Shall We Do Now wasn't found to be included on the vinyl record at the time, because it is such a strong song from going from this dark, menacing song of empty spaces into this swaggery young lust song that sounds like a blues hammer song done better, <laughs> right? Yeah. We'll talk about
3: Yeah. yeah. It. yeah. ZZ a, ta- ta- a little ZZ ta- a yes,
1: Definitely. is kind yeah. of like a very jarring move from left to right.
2: I mean, lyric lyrically, the content it makes sense the topic of each song they go directly together, but musically, that bridge will definitely help.:
1: exactly, exactly. Um, so I know I don't know if you guys did your homework, but I'm gonna go ahead and let's listen to a little bit of what shall we do now? Um,
3: please yeah, I like that to song. kind
1: of bridge the gap. so let's go ahead and listen to that non-album track, but you can find it on in, in the movie)
0: My faces. Search of, more search of more and more, and more. I pray.
1: So that was what shall we do now? Uh, Originally it was known as backs to the wall. It was omitted, like I had mentioned due to time constraints. And again, it just kind of lists the ways to fill the gaps and through kind of more physical possessions, whether it's through buying more guitars, whether it's sex, whether it's um, powerful cars Um, I i love this song so much. When I first watched the movie, I was like, why wasn't that song on the record? Um, what do you, what do you guys think of this? Uh, Steve, what what do you got for this one?
2: Oh, I, you know, I didn't know we were going to talk about it tonight, so I don't have any notes, but I do like this song. I've always, yeah, ever since I discovered it, I probably, you know, I probably watched the movie and didn't even realize that this wasn't on the album until later, but I've always liked it. Um, it's just got a, it's, it's quick. It's got a sense of drive. It's kind of like, uh, it kind of fills the void. Like another brick in the wall. Part three will it's got just the, it has that done. And then Roger Waters takes over and just starts listing things. It's a list song and it's good. Yeah. It gets you to the next track pretty well.
1: If you have it in there, Eric, what do you, what do you think about this one?
3: yeah thanks for sending me the link because I wouldn't have listened to it otherwise and um, it's fa- yeah it's fantastic. Um, this is a this is a real uh, definitely a really interesting song and it fleshes out pink as he is between being a kid and like losing his shit like this this fills in the blanks a little bit i I know it's silly to to just be looking at this from a character standpoint, but if you look at the trajectory of the plot, there is some stuff lacking about who he was as an adult before he loses it. He got pretty much goes from kid to adult for one song and then he loses his shit. So like this this really fills it in a little bit more. Um so story-wise I appreciate it, but just sound-wise it's awesome. It like you said it takes the sonics of empty places but ramps it up a little bit and gets you ready for the kind of high octane young lust. So Uh, They probably only cut it because you can only fit so many songs on the side of a record. Right. Um, That's too bad. The one thing
1: that I will say about the uh, animated sequence in the film is that it does tend to all of a sudden turn into uh, what I envision the, uh, the movie Heavy Metal looks like with guitars and naked ladies and cars just all kind of morphing into one another. Uh, even though heavy metal is probably not that it's just it.
3: Oh, it's that (laughs) they they they're, they're, they're stories, they're little anthology, sci-fi stories, but everyone eventually has some like psychedelic artwork and boobies for sure. Yeah. And then like John Candy voices a robot.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) But I just wanted to quickly mention what shall we do now? And of course include that into our discussion. Uh, But let's go ahead and go into our next track, uh, which is Young Lust. that was young lust uh certainly narratively you have pink enjoying groupies and casual sex living that rock star life cheating on his wife um i'm i'm very intrigued to hear what eric has to say about this one
3: uh, yeah i get it, it it you it almost seems like they want to do a glam rock song here it could be like a uh if you look at the Ziggy Stardust story, this is the suffragette city part of that plot, uh, but it, ultimately it sounds like uh, ZZ Top, um, <laughs> with less with with a little bit less uh, quality uh, blue solos.
1: With more expensive sunglasses. Sure.
3: Sure. Let's just all tread lightly and make sure we're not going to badmouth the top. I didn't, I said, I said less, I said less quality. Actually. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I know. But, uh, that being said, it works in the song. You want it to get a little dirty right here, story wise. So I think it, it fits. Um, I don't know if I would listen to this song independent of this album. Uh, I, I really don't. Um, but it, it, it works. That being said, the, the, I need a dirty woman like that. That got caught in my head all week. Like I was just, I was just whistling that uh, you know, as I, as I was raking leaves in the backyard. So, I mean, it's infectious. There's no doubt about it. I don't know if this sound works for Pink Floyd, but it is, uh, at what at points abrasive, but also uh, effective. So there you go.
2: I do think the sound works for Pink Floyd because David Gilmour's guitar work, mainly. He can go blues hammer E if he wants. Um, the song's a satire, though. They know what they're doing. I I don't think they're playing this song seriously, even though it's one of their biggest hits, probably because it sounds like a, a 1977 AM rock song. Um, this is, I mean, come on, this is like a Boz Skaggs song. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's definitely... From the lyrics to the the sound of it. But it's all done well. The musicianship is great. The the lyrics are they're kind of jokey lyrics. I mean, this rock and roll refugee, that's a ridiculous line. Uh, you know, this guy's in town looking for trouble. Um what what is what is David Gilmore saying something about, you know, Moon wants to find a real man? I'm not even it's way over the top. Uh but there's still some cool audio theater of the mind moments, like where the the there's during the guitar solo there's a scream that kinda go it it elevates uh, a a few different times and there's a keyboard solo in it that's pretty good. I, I think uh it's a it's a classic Pink Floyd lineup joint. You could probably take this song and put it right after have a cigar and it might fit well. It's kind of in that same realm of Pink Floyd songs, but a lot cheesier in the movie. Bob Hoskins can be seen wandering through a room, eating a pineapple. And that's important to me. (laughs) Uh, Not one of my favorite Pink Floyd songs, but for the, like Eric said in the album, it's actually a big story point. And is a is a is a cocky rock song it's it gets the job done uh and the bass line is actually very good but it's overshadowed by the guitar
1: yeah um so as i'm trying to draw parallels from other concept records um this would be essentially uh the parallel version of uh nine inch nails closer you know looking for something to fill that uh personal void inside by looking for something that uh, Fills it both physically and to try to make up for all that emotional distance that he has from others. Um, I would have loved to hear Dave Gilmore saying, I love, I want to fuck you like an animal, but, uh, you know, instead he says he's a rock and roll refugee looking for a little strange. So it is what it is. A um, couple things about this. So in the film, you actually see boobies <laughs> during this part. The the little groupies um, make their way into the backstage area. And uh, that's the Bob Hoskins image of eating pineapple is also uh, with the groupies really just living it up, really trying to get Pink's attention. He seems really disinterested. Um, in the film, it makes it seem like he's not really wanting to engage in um, having an affair at this point, but in the album, it certainly seems like the backwards version, that he's already uh, committing these affairs while being married, and then when he learns at the end of this song that he's trying to call back home to his wife, and uh, the operator's saying, a man keeps answering, and... Um, yeah, she she keeps we keep getting hung up on. And apparently, um, James Guthrie, one of the co-producers, as we had mentioned, he was really going for realism, man. He wanted to get the truth. And so, in a jerky boys type fashion, he actually had one of his friends set this up with an operator, not knowing she was being recorded, to essentially have this played out to the fact that like the operator probably thought that, you know, I'm catching somebody learning that his wife is having an affair on him.
3: <laughs>
2: hey, uh hey,
1: sizzle chest, <laughs> yeah,
0: uh, try exactly. him again.
1: <laughs> but to your
2: point, Mark, I do think that, uh, you know, a lot of Pink's problems started with things he couldn't control because of war and other societal ills but the issues with his wife started with him and then she kind of just went to somebody else I, i think i think they started drifting apart he became a rock star with groupies and then he found out that his wife was cheating on him afterwards but what did he expect i don't think she started cheating on him and then he was driven to do all this other stuff I don't blame the wife is my point. Exactly.
1: I mean, he was already dis- distancing himself from her and she's a human being with her own feelings and thoughts and, you know, she's got to get it somewhere and if someone else is going to give her the attention both emotionally, physically and just be a partner for her while he's off gallivanting um throughout his rock star fantasies and also being emotionally cold. Yeah, y- you can't blame someone from just wanting to Still live their life and not be just waiting like an idiot for that other person to uh, finally notice them. So, totally get it. I don't condone affairs, but at the same time, it's just one of those things that it's a shitty situation made even more shittier. So, yeah. It's not a great song, though. I mean, it is catchy. I will give it that, but it is one of those goofy songs that you know that it's satirical, but at the same time, Um, there is quite a few people that listen to this song and take it absolutely seriously. So,
2: Yes. I mean, also, uh, this for uh, the second um, side of the album, or I guess the third and fourth, I'll be talking about how I think there's a lot of people that probably take a lot of the messages in this album the wrong way. Like some guys that watch Wolf of Wall Street get the wrong idea. Yeah. To your point, same thing with this song. Some people might hear this song and be like, Yeah, you know, this this is actually, I want to go dancing. You know, I just, uh, it's not the point.
3: I would say, I mean, this song stands alone fine. Like I said, I wouldn't gravitate towards it, but it does. But I think we're getting into this rare territory on this album where we get some stuff that works for the story. And when you're in the album, it works, but aren't necessarily standalone songs. This particular side, I think, has more concentrated on it than the rest of the album. That's just my opinion. We can... Can, we can move on
1: absolutely and we will um because right now we have a a little mini play gonna be unfolding before us before we get into the song on one of my turns so let's go ahead and turn the bathwater on because it is time for that groupie to go ahead and enter our hotel room let's listen to that That was one of my turns, Eric. Tell me all about it.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, like you said, this is this is a radio drama. Um, you get a, a, a voice actress. Do we know who that is? I in my head, it's like Fran Drescher, but I'm sure, I'm <laughs> sure it's not. Who do we have?
1: It's Trudy Young. Yeah.
3: Okay. Um, yeah. and she's like oh look at this this is cool what's over here you want to take a bath like she's just kind of walking around his room um uh you know and he's just watching tv and ignoring her apparently they're playing a soap opera called another world on the tv and then in the movie it's Damn Busters. um and uh, the song itself is not related to the groupie at all. It's a uh, song about a just more about that like uh, ending a marriage and a love ending. Night after night, we, we pretend it's all right. I've grown older, you've grown colder. Um, I mean lyrically, it's pretty good. You're getting more about the character. Um, honestly, the song itself, there's not a lot to this song about. Uh, you know, melody, you know, that I would listen to separate of this album. It's effective for what it does. Um, but uh, song-wise, I wouldn't put this high up.
1: Okay. Uh, Steven, what do you got on one of my turns?
2: Fascinating opinion, Eric. Counterpoint. This is a great song. Um, I, I, the theater of the mind part, I enjoy. There's some good dread sense going on here. Um. I mean, I don't know if you're mixing it up with Don't Leave Me Now or something, but I, I've always thought this is a great song. Uh, I mean, you've got that that synthesizer back that sounds close to a Rhodes piano, but it's not. There's a Rhodes piano later on the album. But the, the, this is like a really negative Randy
0: Newman song.
2: <laughs> and I mean that in a good way. I mean, <laughs> That's fair. the day after yeah. day, the world turns gray. His delivery is great. The I feel as cold as a razor blade. Tight as a tourniquet, dry as a funeral drum. Those are great lyrics, and I love the fact that he makes blade and tourniquet rhyme. He pronounces tourniquet tourniquet. Um, and then in the second half of the song, where it just flips and it catches me off guard, and he has the run to the window. Da 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 da. I, I I've heard this album a billion times, and it still catches me off guard. I jump. I'm like, oh yeah. And the song just kicks into this whole other dark kind of uh blues rock song that then involves a screaming howl, cascading pianos. Roger or David Gilmour with another great guitar riff that down, 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 down. I think the second half of this song makes it an all timer for the record. Actually, I the first half is OK. The second half of the album, though, I love, and I love the way it ends with the,
0: why are you running away?
2: I am a big fan of one of my turns. Apparently, Eric is not. Mark.
3: I, I think, I, I don't know. I think you, you make you want to go back again. I think when I'm listening to it, I'm like, okay, this is good for the story. Does it stand alone as a song? And maybe I, I'm second guessing that I'm caught up in the story. Uh, you bring up a good point. Well, I think you might feel that way
2: because it definitely has two parts. It's not... One cohesive song. It's two songs smashed into one, I think, I believe. And the second half of it leads into Don't Leave Me Now, which is five minutes of interestingness that we'll talk about next.
1: Um, so I'm more on Steve's on, on this uh, because when he uh, emotionally snaps uh, during that run to the bedroom in the suitcase on the left, you'll find my favorite X. Uh, that is just unbelievable and it's not only does it kind of catch you by surprise but uh for me it has kind of this dark humor to it um like it's almost this american psycho like don't look so frightened this is just a passing phase one of my bad days and then he lists some of the activities you want to watch some tv you want to fuck you want to maybe contemplate the silent freeway you want to try something uh, something to eat? You want to learn to fly? Would you want, want, want to see me try? Like thinking like, you want to watch me jump out of this window? Just snapping because he was in this kind of catatonic phase, uh, state where he was ignoring her. And all of a sudden he just like kicks the TV and just says, all right, you have my attention now. And um, he just snaps.
2: Um, I mean, essentially this is, this is, This is uh, Bruce Wayne saying, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And then all of a sudden he realized, hey, why are you running away? I thought you wanted my attention. And um, which does lead into the next song. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I can understand like the want to take a bath. Oh, wow. Look at all these, your guitars. I mean, most Pink Floyd fans like really Floyd heads have memorized this. So if there ever is a um, production where they're seeing this live, they're actually like the Rocky horror picture show saying, saying these lines right back and is just become such part of this whole experience of the wall. And I, I I do like this song quite a bit um, both musically and lyrically. It's
3: funny. I think this would, this it's funny. I think this would be my favorite scene in the play but um, not the song as a song. I don't know if it tracks, but it's my favorite. It would be my favorite scene in the play. You're right. It's, it's dark humor. Yeah. It's best.
2: Also the, uh, the very, just the synth, the synth piano in the beginning with the, in the, the, I can feel one of my turns coming on. I think about that <laughs> some back. To my, wife. Yeah. my wife, my wife, when, 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 There are times where, like, I know I'm like, uh oh, I'm gonna say something fucking rude that I shouldn't say because we're fighting, or you know, I'm mad or angry, upset with myself, and just that phrase, like, I can feel one of my turns coming on. I think we can all all relate to that. I think he words it. He words it perfectly, though.
1: Hit the deck. Yeah. 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 Um. But uh, yeah, I mean, it it was one of those songs when I first started listening to this record. It didn't necessarily hit me right in the ribs, um, but as soon as like. I got emotionally invested into the whole character and how I can personally relate to it. That's where it became a home run. Um, So let's go ahead and continue with Don't Leave Me Now. So that was Don't Leave Me Now. Um narratively, this is where right after Pink has trashed his hotel room, his groupie has run out of the room in fear and terror, thinking that he's going to be she's gonna be murdered. And now he's got that emotional that that feeling that you get right after a big outburst, that self-pity and loathing. Um he's depressed um at the situation that you've created and you've realized that the people that I have emotionally depended on, I have now pushed away. Um, Steve, tell me what you think about don't leave me now.
2: Well, I, I don't mind it. I think it's a little long, but, um, I, and the don't leave me now, I believe is definitely directed at his wife, wherever she may be, not the groupie. Uh, and yeah, realizing there's going to be two, we're going to talk about this on the second or the third side second half of this whole wall odyssey uh, the instant regret after you do something. And on this one, yeah, I think he's like, oh, I'm all alone. Shit. Do I want to be alone? I don't know if I want to be alone. The The beginning half of it. And again, back to my comment about this album, making you feel like you might be in an isolation tank sounds drift into the darkness. They do a great job of that. There's these like weird echoing squelches. It's very desolate and dark. It sounds like it needs to, uh, but I mean, I guess it's, that's what it's tra- attempting to do, and, and I, I just, maybe it is the right length. I don't know. It, it shouldn't be easy to listen to if they're trying to make you feel like you've just been left. Uh, to Eric's point, I don't know if I'm going to put Don't Leave Me Now on by itself, but I can tell you that the second half of it, again, it picks it up the the classic Floyd lineup dives into the song in the second half. And during the whole, the Ooh, babe section where David Gilmore gets brought in and is doing some wailing guitar. There's some great organ work. It's uh, the second half definitely picks the song up for me and justifies its existence on the album. Not one of my favorite tracks off the album, but it's not bad. Eric, what
1: do you think?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, story-wise, it's not as meaty as the last track. Um, but I do like uh, the oxygen tank percussion that's happening. The breathing apparatus that basically builds the rhythm in the background. And I only noticed that with headphones on. Sounds like a freaking iron lung. Um and I, I think that's a good touch. Uh, and somebody just like alone with their thoughts and their, and their regret. Um, there is also some dark humor on this, uh, need you, need you, need you, need you to be to a pulp on a Saturday night. Uh, just, just misplaced anger. Um, and, uh, this whole like idea where he's basically begging, his wife not to not not to leave not to do what what she did not to make him complete building his wall um as if it's her fault um it's a desperate song and uh i do like that it ends with uh picking it up a notch and being a bit of a jam um but i i do get pulled into the atmosphere um but it does not have the Cinematic qualities of the last song, but I do like the atmosphere. Yeah,
1: I I think you're both, again, correct on this one. Um, This song is four minutes long, but it takes about three minutes for it to actually really get going to the second section where it really captures your attention. A couple things worth noting is that Roger Waters' vocal performance on this, um, he's hitting notes that he shouldn't be trying to hit, and he's embracing it. And I, I, I'm sure you guys and even the listeners know what I'm talking about if you've heard this song. Um, And you know, Roger Waters is not necessarily an accomplished vocalist, but he he uses his voice to convey uh, feelings and expression. I think very well. And whether or not it's done musically or pleasant or consonant, I guess you would say. Um, It's very dissonant in his way, and when you get that soothing solve of Dave Gilmore doing his ooh babes, and um, when the guitars come rushing in to make it a feeling a little bit more of a structured song, is where like my attention really starts to come up. But it is one of those songs that just kind of bridging the gap narratively, and if you find yourself and into further studies where you're wanting to compare the wall to, let's say pros and cons of hitchhiking, you will then understand of why Dave Gilmore was so important to the whole creative process. Um, and, uh, that's all I'll say about that. I'll just tease that, but
3: Hey Mark, I want to touch on something that you mentioned there about as far as, uh, waters his limits as a vocalist. I actually think that connects to a point that Steve made earlier about them being kind of aligned with prog rock, but not necessarily a, an example of it. Prog rock would never be okay with a less than technically perfect singer. You know what I mean? Like uh, they would sacrifice emotion over um, technicality every time. You know what I mean? Like you have to hit the notes Uh, and that's what I kind of love about the difference between the two is that, um, is that, uh, waters can't hit the notes, but he tries and it's all, it's more about the emotion, which, which I think is very forward thinking for, uh, for a band in the seventies because especially a popular band in the seventies that, that, that would almost not, not be allowed. Um, that's more of like a punk. Uh, ideology, or like a, an indie rock or post punk ideology, which I, I really do appreciate. He goes for it,
2: which is interesting. You say that because one of the Sex Pistols, who's a punk band that I have no time for, but is one of the more popular s- punk bands from that era. They had like they 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 put Pink Floyd in their targets as one of the like the biggest problems of rock and roll. And I was like, what are you what are you talking about? You know, go af- go after the like we said before the Eagles or Kiss or something, but. Pink Floyd is not problematic, big time rock and roll.
3: I love a lot of punk and Sex Pistols, you (laughs) go fuck. I don't give a a shit about them.
1: They always seem like a manufactured band, you know, like someone that was more just trying to sell merchandise than like a punk version of the Monkees. Um, I'm probably off base on that, but that's just how I feel about them.
3: There you are, they're a boy band created by McLaren. You're absolutely right.
1: Um. Okay, so I don't think we really need to uh, beleaguer Don't Leave Me Now. So let's go ahead and listen to the last Another Brick in the Wall, part three. Um, let's sample that. And that was another Brick in the Wall Part 3, where we find Pink's breakdown is now complete and he's now dismissing everyone as bricks in keeping him out and feeling normal in society. It seems that uh, all of these emotional um, traumas and how he reacts to them, he feels that the only way to make himself feel that he's going to survive all this is by isolating himself even further. Um, but, uh, tell me Eric, how you feel about another brick in the wall, part three.
3: So this one cuts to the chase. It doesn't have the atmosphere of the other songs, but it's fuller. Um, it's, it's, it just, it just shows up as thick, a thick rock song playing the riff, the motif that we've come to love over this album. Um it's funny though when i'm listening to it i'm like oh it's only a minute long i wish it was like like this sounds great that's because i'm comfortable with that riff they've played it enough over this album i want this to go on and that's the whole reason why they don't go on is it's it is comfortable at this point and they're not going to rely on that anymore well until later but they're not going to rely on it as a song anymore um i will say that the percussion is absolutely huge on this version which I do enjoy, um like I said, I wish it went on longer, but I totally understand why it doesn't story wise it, it's not about it's not about retreading this comfort zone anymore, so there
2: you go, yeah, it does a lot in a minute. It's a minute long, man, they do a lot, and it's a it's a bridge song, but out of all the bridge songs, I think it's one of the better better ones. It picks it just condenses all the other brick in the wall. <laughs> songs into just one it's just so intense the start of it you've got the theater of the mind with like somebody just sounds like they're trying to just break down a door and it reminds me of the beginning of the downward spiral with mr self-destruct speed bag moment um i it really puts you into the song those sound effects make you feel like you're in that room with whatever the hell is going on and the intensity and determination of roger water's vocals is just great. And when the rest of the band kicks in, the drums and the bass and guitar all kick in. It's wonderful. I I can't think of many songs that do so much so quickly in a one minute track. It's, it's, it's a powerful track and I think it's a worthy final brick in the wall before we get to what it's like to be behind the wall. It's, it's a, uh, it sums up all these songs that came before it culminate in this one minute that quickly comes through. And they finished building the wall. It's it's good. It is really
1: good. Uh, that sound, I always thought, I mean, maybe I'm just equating it with the film of him just smashing all of those TVs that he was watching and just finally like, that's it. The television was my conduit to the outside world, and I'm now even going to shut that out. And so um, that was one of the things, even though uh, later on the second half of the record, we still hear him watching TV. So yeah, I was
2: just gonna say, there's a whole one of my favorite Pink Floyd songs of all time is just him and exactly. Of
1: the <laughs> so, oh yeah, and we'll get to that and uh, nobody home, but um, uh, it is just that finality of it. Um, if you listen to the live recording, um, it does stretch out that melody um, as the roadies were finishing actually constructing the physical wall between the band and the audience, so there is kind of this. Like, extended outro before we get to our last track of uh essentially side 1 and side 2 um but great track i mean that thematic guitar riff is prevalent um it seems to have sped itself up as we are coming to the emotional conclusion of his wall being built um i don't really feel like we really need to discuss that song particularly much longer so let's go ahead and close out this part of the wall with Goodbye, Cruel World.
0: Goodbye, Cruel World. I'm leaving you today. Goodbye. Goodbye, all you people. There's nothing you can say to make me change
1: my mind. So that was Goodbye, Cruel World. Um, it is just a Roger Waters alone with his bass. If you're watching this live, um, you just see Roger Waters' head Um, that is the only thing visible because everything else has been blocked out by the actual bricks of the wall. And it's got that, well, I'll just let you guys discuss it before I give you my, uh, two cents. But, uh, uh, Eric, goodbye, cruel world. Is it a, uh, misconstrued suicide letter or is it, uh, the end of, uh, someone emotionally connecting to the outside world?
3: I mean, I think story-wise it's the latter. Um I I guess I I never got a lot of suicide vibes from this album but I can see I can see the parallels. Um But yeah, he uh he doesn't he he whether he doesn't feel connection to society or he does not uh Pink does not uh, it's just too much trouble for him. He has built his wall and he is going behind it. The shame, the regret, all of the above it's wall time um i like the uh synth work and the bass work is awesome fretless bass with a little reverb on it chef's kiss that that is the uh the pink Floyd style i know and love huge huge bass work and uh would be mimicked even by bands i love like primus and and other things great bass work on the song um and uh Yeah. I love the good night. Goodbye. Goodbye. That part that, like I said, it could be, could be end of the life. It could just be end of, end of my time in society. Story-wise, that's how it works, but, um, it's a good side closer as a song itself. I mean, it's not going to stick to your ribs like a lot of other things on here, but, um, atmosphere wise, it's, 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 it's lovely.
1: Steven.
2: Yeah, this song is just Roger Waters and Richard Wright because there's a little bit of synthesizers going on there too, and it serves its purpose. Uh, I think it's a great capper to the first half of this story, and I think it, yeah, it's just it's him saying, "Well, I've I've decided to build this wall, this metaphorical, emotional, mental, maybe physical wall." And uh goodbye. And I love the way it gets cut off. I love the way KU picks up right after it. And I think it's I think it's a pretty good idea to have something like that telling you clearly you're now moving into the other phase of the story. Um one thing I'd like to bring up is that I just remembered there is a bluegrass cover album of the entire wall called Luther Right and the Wrongs Rebuild the Wall. Has nothing to do with Hey, or I'm sorry, with uh, Goodbye Cruel World, but I just remembered it existed and I didn't want to forget to tell everybody about it. So
3: I can't imagine that's uh, (laughs) worth anybody's time. Ridiculous. Uh, Anyhow,
2: I really, I just, I just popped in my mind. But Goodbye Cruel World, it's a, it's a good, good closer. You're not going to, I
3: can't imagine any genre of music has less atmosphere than bluegrass.
2: Mm, No. I'm not going to get into that. But uh I mean what would Joan say if he, she heard you say such a thing Eric? But um
3: uh she'd agree with me. She doesn't listen to music for atmosphere and then she'd spank my bottom.
2: Uh, um well we're not talking about track 6 Mother. We're talking about Goodbye Cruel World. <laughs> uh, um, it serves a purpose. It's uh, you, you're not going to put it on and dance to it, but it's it's there for it's a uh, it's a much more condensed version of a uh, the downward spiral.
1: Yes. Um, So goodbye, cruel world. It exists as a way not only to uh, essentially close act one of this epic story Um, as the curtain falls and the audience is ready to go out for intermission. This is essentially the song that, uh, that provides that Um, just letting them know that we are through understanding why Pink has now isolated himself. Now what is he going to do in order to either get out of that wall that he's built around himself, or if he's going to just embrace it? And uh, that's what we're going to find out um, on our next part two episode as we go into the second half of the wall. Um, For this premiere episode of our season three, we're going to um, cut it off here for now. And when we talk to you uh, either next week or the week after, we will be discussing the second half of The Wall. And uh, yes, I'm excited to talk about this. It certainly is a very large album to discuss, and that's why we need to uh, separate it into two uh, episodes for you folks. Um, But for now, we're going to close it here. And uh, this has been Mark. Eric and this is Steve
2: and I feel like we just slammed the brakes off right before we're gonna go into the fireworks factory.
1: Oh yes, the fireworks factory is where all of the uh, uh, the real meat of the story. We have now discussed of how the character is and what are our feelings on the wall, but now when we come to the second half, is where hold on to your hats and glasses, folks. That's um, right.
3: Give the peon peons blue balls. and Exactly. See see you again.
1: We'll see you real soon.
2: This gives me the urge to defecate.
1: (laughs) Well, as always, we hope that we brought you closer to pod.